For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Ah, welcome back to Hurt Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Okay, let's talk a little environment. We got another one of our great young voices contributors. Uh, she is a she is a marketing and media manager. She writes all over the place, including the OC Register and the Hill. She's a graduate of San Jose State University. Well, if you got to go to school on the West Coast, I guess there are worse places than having to be at the beach in the valley. Uh, she's also the co-host of the really good Whiskey Bench podcast. Kat Dwyer, how are you, ma'am? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Thrilled to have you. Okay, so we're going to cut against the grain of what a lot of people think is common knowledge or the common consensus, folks call it. There's this loud thing in social media, news media, that uh, the market or capitalism or whatever you want to call it is bad for the environment. You've been writing in fee.org, though. You list a couple of examples of where actually, no, the market's actually doing a pretty good job for the environment in a couple of ways. Yeah, that's right. Um, there's there's a there is sort of a misconception amongst uh, the environmentalist community uh, that that sort of thinks that that markets are what causes environmental problems. Um, but what I've written about in Fee and what the organization I work for, Perk, the Property and Environment Research Center, uh, what we focus on is identifying uh, sort of market solutions to environmental challenges. Um, so in the piece, I talk about sort of how markets are helping conserve water, um, helping sustain wildlife habitat, and helping get really critical forest restoration work done on the ground in a timely manner. Now, it's not that we don't know that there are companies out there that take advantage of environmental things. We obviously know that this is an accountability issue that both, uh, frankly, also the U.S. government needs to be accountable, some of the things they've done over the years. Governments, policies, companies, this all kind of starts with a little bit of a level of an accountability thing, right, as to whether or not folks are doing good. But, but there's this spectrum here where, yeah, there's a lot of bad, but we need to kind of stop and highlight the good stuff that's happening as well, don't we? We do. Um, and I think there's also a misconception about the role that property rights play in conserving resources. Um, but property rights are really critical um, in incentivizing resource conservation and making sure that uh, scarce resources are put to their, their highest valued use. Um, and often 
in the example of sort of water conservation, sometimes uh, government regulation or government management actually gets in the way of conservation. Um, so so I, can, I can dive into that a little bit if you're interested. I am interested because I used to live in Vegas and, and this is uh, 10, 11 years ago now. And even then they were talking about like, wow, Lake Mead's almost empty and it's even worse now. Uh, and the joke was in Las Vegas, like, well, we don't have any water because it all goes to SoCal. You're out yeah. west, though. This water thing is really becoming a really, really thing. Just real quickly before we get into the details of it, because I know we have a little bit of East Coast bias media when you're on the East Coast. This water thing in the West is getting to be a real, real thing. It def- Yeah, it definitely is. Um, it's so I mean, drought is sort of a recurring phenomenon in the in the Western part of the United States. It's something that's inevitable that, you know, we have to prepare for. Um, and certainly in the last several years, it's uh, we're sort of in a new phase of drought. Um, and it's that has been exacerbated this year um, in large part due to, to La Nina weather patterns. So um, thankfully, I, I'm now I left California. I'm now in Montana. I did that before the pandemic. I'll give myself a little break there. Um, but uh, so we're at almost normal snowpack levels in, in a good portion of the state, but sort of um, certainly the, the southwest of the United States um, is suffering from a really bad drought. Um, and as you know, like Lake Mead is in critical condition. Um, so, so tools to help conserve water are sort of more important than ever. Um, and water markets is one way um, that sort of the private sector can step in and help conserve water. Um, so sort of the way, uh, well, I'll, I'll give an example first. One of the groups that is helping do this um, is a conservation group called Trout Unlimited that I'm sure, uh, I'm sure many of your listeners are probably familiar with. Um, what they do, uh, they have been partnering uh, with, with landowners who have water rights, um, primarily sort of ag producers or farmers, ranchers, um, to leave some of their water in stream at critical times to help support fish populations. Um, so basically Trout Unlimited compensates them um, in exchange for leaving some of the water in stream um, and it benefits the fish and it benefits uh, the farmer. Um, now that can happen in states where uh, in stream flow is considered a beneficial use. Um, and unfortunately that is not the case across every state in the West. Um, and it's increasingly becoming the new normal, but historically that's not the way uh, sort of water rights were managed. Um, historically, water rights were um, sort of uh, designated by the prior appropriations doctrine, which is sort of more commonly known as kind of first in time, first in right. So the first person to settle the land and put water to uh, a productive use or a beneficial use is the legal term. Um, they had rights to that water and they were the senior water rights holders. Um, and what was considered a beneficial use was determined by the government. Um, and typically that meant uh, a, a traditionally productive use like agriculture, uh, which made sense when we were trying to develop the West. Um, but increasingly sort of um, values are changing. And certainly with the realities of drought, uh, conservation is increasingly becoming um, uh, valuable. Uh, so where uh, the states that have allowed in-stream flow to be a beneficial use, um, it has sort of opened up the opportunity for water markets, um, which is, it, it's a great way to kind of utilize price signals by allowing water to be put to its highest value use. And sometimes that is 
uh, agriculture, certainly, and sometimes it's water conservation. Um, so when government has gotten out of the way, or at least sort of um, liberalized the regulations over water rights, uh, it has opened up this opportunity um, for these private voluntary exchanges to help conserve water. Yeah, and for people who are like, well, what does fish got to do with anything? Uh, the fish population, a healthy fish population, that is something conservationists and fishermen will tell you. That's kind of the early warning system to whether you're having problems with a, something like a water table or the water thing. That tells you ahead of time, hey, there's a big problem here because they're way more sensitive to us. Is We just discovered this on the East Coast with the Kmore situation with the Cape Fear River. Uh, they, that's how they figured it out. The, the fish migration patterns changed. The ecosystem changed. Lo and behold, 10, 15 years later, you got major water problems. So when people say, well, what's fish got to do with it? They got a lot to do with it, especially when you start talking about farmers down the road start running out of water. Right, right. Um, and, and another example that maybe more directly relates to sort of drought relief for, for communities. Um, the So Native American tribes have, have their own water rights on their reservations, but many of them are limited from being able to sell their water off reservations, off reservation, meaning to, to municipalities and other communities that are not on the reservation. Um, it requires an act of Congress for them to be able to do that, which is a totally sort of tedious uh, process. Um, so that's something else that, that Perk, the group I work for, has been looking into, um, trying to advocate to change that so, so tribes have more sovereignty over their water rights and can therefore help you know, alleviate the drought in the West if they so choose to by selling their water to off-reservation users. Um, so just another example of where you know, maybe you know, I'll give the government benefit of the doubt. Maybe well-intentioned regulations um, have have really um, created environmental harm down the road. Yeah, and we've talked about it in other areas, but folks that haven't lived out west or been out west, again, you know, there's East Coast bias to the media. We all know this. Um, we've talked about it in things like criminal justice and sort of things like this. When you have large swaths of the areas out west that are a lot of reservation land out there, a lot of tribal land out there, there's a lot of government-owned land that something like 80, 89% of the state of Nevada is owned by the United States government. Things like uh, land usage, water uses, it gets legally complicated really, really fast because this isn't just normal land stuff. It's government land. It's tribal land that has its reservation. There's a lot of overlapping stuff when it comes to rights like this, isn't there? Oh yeah, there there absolutely are. the 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 way water rights are managed um, is incredibly complicated. The sort of very broad generalization I gave of the prior appropriations doctrine and now allowing for different, you know, definitions of beneficial uses definitely a simplified version of that. And the work Trout Unlimited is doing, um, it has to be very very much tailored to very specific uh, landscapes, water systems, and and landowners who have specific rights. Yeah. And for those of you that are curious, just last Supreme Court term, we still had two states suing each other over water rights. So it's an ongoing thing. Uh, you mentioned it to kind of uh, put a bow on this a little bit. You uh, summarized it this way. You said harnessing markets in this way, this is from your fee.org piece, allows for this precious resource to be put to its highest value use and gives conservationists a price mechanism by which to realize water's conservation value. I know people kind of maybe roll their eyes and go, well, you can't price water. It's something everybody needs. Yeah, we understand that. But we're talking legislation. We're talking legal documents. You have to put valuation on these things because you've got to be able to write laws and policy about them, don't you? Well, that yes, that's very true. That's one reason. But another reason, too, sort of from an economic perspective is without a price signal or price mechanism, 
uh, that value can't, it, it isn't defined, so it's unknown. Um, and, and without sort of rights, property rights over that resource, uh, you get, you wind up with the tragedy of the commons when nobody, when nobody owns it, everybody owns it. Right. And, and it can be depleted. So when we have a scarce resource like water in the West, um, having property rights over it so that it can be conserved and traded, um, and then having a price mechanism that helps determine who values this most, is it agriculture or is it conservationists in, you know, and that changes, it's all voluntary exchange. Um, and it changes depending on, you know, the circumstances and the needs at the time, but those market tools help facilitate conserving that resource. And I think that's something that's, um, largely, you know, not understood in the environmentalist, uh, movement. Yep. And that gap gets us right back to where we started with a lack of accountability because then nobody knows who to go for, for the answers. Uh, talking to Kat Dwyer about her feed.org piece and some water stuff. We're going to take a quick break on her tell. We come back, going to talk sustaining wildlife. One of my favorite uh, conservation story, going to talk a little elk. I love me some elk. And uh, we're also going to talk forest health, talk a little trees, uh, not just the tree hugging kind, the kind that we actually have some good news when it comes to trees in America. Uh, Kat Dwyer joining us on her tell more right after this. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell, talking environmental and conservation and some policy stuff and some practical examples of how the market isn't just the big bad part of environmentalists. There's actually good stuff going on. We like to highlight good stuff. Kat Dwyer joining us. Okay, we talked fish and water. Uh, let's get on dry land for a minute. Sustaining wildlife habitat. And you used an interesting uh, example here that I've kind of been following for a few years because I find it fascinating. Uh, elk occupancy agreements. So let's talk a little wildlife habitat for a minute. Yeah. Um, so the, the group I work with, PERC, um, partnered with another conservation group uh, in Montana called the Greater Yellowstone Coalition. Um, and the two of us worked with a, uh, a private ranching family in a beautiful spot of Montana called the Paradise Valley. Um, and we worked with them to conserve nearly 500 acres of their ranching operation um, to be designated uh, elk winter range. Um, so to provide a little bit of context around this, um, basically the private lands in a place like Paradise Valley provide a really critical service of providing habitat for a whole host of species, one of them being uh, elk, which is a, a really important keystone species um, of what is known as the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, uh, which is one of the, if not the largest intact ecosystems in North America. Um, so they provide this habitat, but doing so comes at a cost to landowners. Elk, you know, have to, their cattle have to compete with forage with elk, uh, elk knock down fences, and they also potentially transfer um, a disease called brucellosis, which causes cattle to abort their young. Um, so providing this habitat comes at a real cost. Um, and many of these ranchers are, are truly just like barely hanging on. Um, and at the same time that they're dealing with this cost, there's 
there's really just sort of mounting uh, urban development pressure. Um, all of these damn Californians keep moving <laughs> here to Montana. Um, and uh, they, uh, so there's, there's just a huge pressure to, to develop a place like Paradise Valley. Um, and if that happens, then these large private working lands are gonna be subdivided into ranchettes and into you know, strip malls. Um, and we will lose that wildlife habitat completely. So Herc and we're trying to find a way to conserve this habitat, conserve these migration corridors. Um, and while at the same time recognizing the really valuable critical role that private lands play um, in, in providing habitat. Um, so, you know, this elk occupancy agreement is essentially a shorter term habitat lease. Um, and it's an alternative to a more onerous model that the government puts forth, which are conservation easements. Um, you know, many landowners are willing and, and able to manage their land for conservation and to provide habitat. Um, but the conservation easements that the government offers require conservation in perpetuity. Um, so that comes with a lot of strings and not a lot of landowners are, are willing always to, to go, you know, go with that agreement. Um, so having other tools like an elk occupancy agreement or other similar shorter habitat leases uh, offers just more opportunity to help conserve to conserve habitat um, and make sure that these working lands continue working and that elk have um, you know these migration corridors open. Yeah, we've talked about those easements with our friend Gabby Hoffman when she talks conservation with us. And the problem with that is, like you mentioned, that's that's kind of a one shot deal, because once you do it, it's almost you talked about an act of Congress. This literally would take an act of Congress to get those easements changed back over. Um, but we need to mention here, too, historically, this is a new twist on a very old problem settling the West. Of course, we know the extremes of them almost wiping out the buffalo as an invasive species, quote unquote, for all the cattle guys and the railroads. Um, this goes back again. We keep hearing it over and over again. Proper land usage, property rights. This is some very fundamental stuff to Americans that just keeps popping up. This just has kind of an environmental or a climate-based uh, overtone to it, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think something, you know, sort of our theme here of, of things that are overlooked within the environmental space, uh, private lands are often overlooked. Um, and Private landowners have, you know, over centuries learned how to properly manage their land, right? Um, and they're really our partners in conservation. Um, and like I said, the reality in a place like Paradise Valley, and this is an issue that's happening all across the West, it's it's really a choice between urban development or keeping these private lands working, which keeping them working means these are large open landscapes. They provide habitat. They also provide, you know, food, <laughs> which is critically important. Um, so there's a lot of value there. Uh, and a group like Perk, like we just don't, we don't view them as our enemy. We view them as our partners in conservation. Yeah. And it doesn't matter what the issue is, whether it's um, social justice, education, anything. A lot of this stuff starts with a breakdown when government and the private sector don't see each other as partners and start becoming adversarial. It's kind of a universal theme. And it applies here as well to especially land use out West where it's a real issue and been an issue from the beginning. I figure it'll be an issue for a long time to go. Okay, let's talk some trees. Problem with trees are, I, I just had to trim some off my property, is a tree close to your house is a bomb waiting to go off out west. They're fuel for wildfires. 
it the perception is wildfires are getting worse and worse. There's also data saying that they're getting worse and worse. You brought it up that there's some market stuff trying to address this and not just the usual uh, government programs, because frankly, and I don't want to go down this rabbit hole too far, forest management is one of those things nobody wants to talk about until something's on fire, and then nobody wants to talk about it afterwards, but it's vitally important, isn't it? Oh, it absolutely is. Yeah. Um, so to provide a little context on on what is often described as the wildfire crisis, um, wildfires are getting larger and hotter, um, in large part as a result of over a century of fire suppression policy from the Forest Service. Um, basically, that, that policy of putting out all fires as quickly as possible disrupted natural fire cycles. I think it's worth noting that wildfire is a really important part of a forest ecosystem. Um, it has regenerative benefits. Um, and so our suppression policies disrupted natural fire cycles, um, and it led to a buildup of fuel sources in our forests, um, which means there's more fuel for a wildfire to consume. Therefore, the fires burn hotter um, and longer. Um, also, the wildfire season is sort of um, expanding, um, especially as we see drought conditions throughout the West. So fires are starting earlier and they're lasting longer into the fall. Um, so this, this problem has been growing um, and the Forest Service has identified uh, 80 million acres in need of restoration. That's their backlog right now. 63 million of that 80 million um, are have been identified um, at a severe risk of catastrophic wildfire. So that's a huge backlog. And at the current pace and scale, the Forest Service, it will take decades, multiple decades to address the full backlog. And of course, over that course of time, the backlog is going to continue to grow. So it's really, it's a huge problem that it's it's going to take a lot of effort to really get our hands around and get ahead of it. Um, and thankfully, the private sector, some really interesting, innovative financial tools have emerged um, that are helping increase the pace and scale of that restoration. Uh, one group that's doing this is called uh, Blue Forest, um, and they, in partnership with the World Resources Institute, pioneered what's called the Forest Resilience Bond. And it's a simple model, but it's brilliant. It basically brings stakeholders together to fund this kind of work. So uh, they, they pool money from uh, like an impact investor or an insurance company to put the money up front for the bond to get the restoration work done. And then stakeholders who would benefit from forest restoration, like a you know water utility in a particular municipality, um, they agree to pay back the bond at a reasonable rate of return once the restoration is complete. Um, so it's a really cool model to just get capital on the ground to increase the pace and scale. Yeah, one thing that doesn't get covered on these wildfires is this is a huge financial problem, especially in smaller rural communities, even in a big state like California. These are usually rural towns or rural municipalities that get wiped out by these fires. They then, you know, you imagine a small town having to completely redo all of their infrastructure, for example, which is what happened because people don't realize, you know, wildfire can destroy a road. You don't think of something like a road burning, but it does. It tears the asphalt up. It's got to be redone. Um, just talk about that for a second, that this is one of those things when you're talking about wildfires and forest conservation, this is one of those things where, yeah, you better spend some money for prevention because if you don't, the expense of trying to fix it after is astronomically more expensive for everybody, especially taxpayers. Oh, completely. Yeah. Um, and, and one example of sort of infrastructure that's threatened from wildfire are, are watersheds and then therefore wa the water supply to a community. Um, here in Bozeman, for example, 
the Forest Service has been trying to do restoration work around our local watershed to ensure that our water source isn't polluted. If, you know, it's not even if actually, it's when a wildfire comes through that area. Um, and if they can mitigate the severity of the wildfire by doing, you know, prescriptive thinning and prescribed burning around the watershed to protect it, that would be great. Um, unfortunately, that project has been delayed literally by decades uh, because of litigation. Environmentalists don't wanna see, you know, any trees thinned or cut. And so they've stopped that project. And the reality is it's a huge risk. Like when, when that fire comes, uh, it can destroy your watershed and then your entire community is at risk. Um, so that's where the forest resilience bond, they, the first pilot project was conducted in the Tahoe National Forest in California. Um, and one of the stakeholders that agreed to pay back the bond was the Yuba Water Council because uh, they saw an interest in getting this kind of restoration work done to protect their water source. Um, so again, it's just a really, uh, it's a really innovative tool to just kind of get resources on the ground quickly. Um, and one thing I'll note about that to kind of illustrate how it did increase the pace and scale, the Forest Service, um, which I should note, Blue Forest works in partnership with the Forest Service. So it's not just like rogue people going out into the forest and chopping down trees, they work with forest managers. Um, but the Forest Service, noted that because of the private capital through this forest resilience bond, they got that restoration work done in four years as compared to the estimated decade it was going to take if it was left up to the Forest Service alone. Yeah, and that's where this uh, public-private partnership really comes in. We've seen it with things like infrastructure projects. Um, both presidents, Republican and Democrat, they will talk about this when they go to do infrastructure. All of a sudden, if they want to do it fast, they'll bring up those public-private partnerships. That's the flexibility you're talking about, because people will tell you fire seasons, every fire season is different, weather patterns are different every single time. And you've got this backlog that has the Forest Service trying to work on a decade timetable. That's just not sustainable. Talk about what the problem here is, because I think we oversimplified how much of it is bureaucracy, how much of it is legal entanglement, because a lot of these areas get tied up in court through environmentalist groups and the government themselves on fair usage, things like this. I suspect there's a spectrum of problems here, but kind of break it down, you know, what's bureaucracy, what's just out and out neglect in some cases, what's tied up in court, and then what of it is, is just time's moving way faster than the government and the private sector can keep up with it. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, I, I would say historically, sort of the Forest Service's suppression policy is what really led to the severity of the problem we're dealing with. Um, they, however, have realized, and even the Biden administration has acknowledged, that, like we need to actually do this type of restoration work. So, thankfully, there's been a, there's been a shift in sort of perspective and motivation there. Um, now, the hangup is largely bureaucratic. So, there are um, really, really lengthy environmental review processes that um, any that the service, the Forest Service, has to go through um, to to actually implement forest restoration work. Um, there is NEPA, which is uh, uh, one um, process, environmental review process that I think people are familiar with um, that can delay forest restoration, you know, projects by like seven plus years. Um, so it just, it, it, it um, you know, NEPA is designed to protect the environment to make sure that any any projects that are being done on the environment are, be, are being done so in a way that, that protects the environment. Um, in the forest restoration context, 
Unfortunately, NEPA is actually preventing work that needs to be done to protect the environment. It's actually doing the opposite of what it's supposed to be doing. And it's actually putting our forests at risk because it's delaying this urgently needed restoration work. Um, and then there is the threat of litigation, which like the Bozeman uh, Municipal Watershed Project example I shared, um, litigation can delay these critically needed projects by, by decades. Um, so there's thankfully an understanding that we need this restoration work, but now we need to amend regulation and, 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 and sort of hedge against litigation to get this work done. Um, we know it's an election year. This stuff is not going to show up on any of the top 10 issues. This isn't, you know, abortion or the war in Ukraine or inflation or the economy. What should the average person that does care about conservation be doing to kind of keep pressure on folks? Because we know the old, well, call your congressman. Well, that doesn't really work that much. What can folks do on their social media and just their average interactions to talk about these issues in an effective way, do you think, especially in a campaign season where there's a lot of things that are a lot noisier, but when the forest fires come into your house or you run out of water or the elk encroach and get your cattle herd sick or whatever the case may be that we're talking about, all of a sudden it's a pressing issue. Uh, how should folks talk about this just in their normal social media interactions, do you think? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I guess because these issues aren't really going to grab national headlines, I think keeping trying to keep a, a, a local perspective and and work, you know, with your local representatives, if that's possible, you know, tag them, I suppose, on social media and maybe try to like, you know, get it, make it trend. Um, that's, of course, difficult. But I also think, you know, looking again to the private sector, there's a lot of really innovative conservation groups and businesses that are trying to solve these problems privately. Um, and frankly, if the government doesn't care or it's too tied up in its own red tape to actually move to make to make progress on these problems, then let's look to the innovative private sector and let's take this issue into our own hands um, and get the work done uh, on our own. Um, and, and thankfully that's, that isn't such a tall order. There, there are people doing it. Um, so I would encourage folks to, to look into you know, their local community and see what groups are doing, are doing private innovative work and, and see how they can support that. Yeah, and we said it back earlier in the conversation, uh, public-private partnership. Government needs to be a partnership with the public and with businesses. Sometimes the government's got a better idea. Sometimes business has got a good idea. And if you don't have a partnership, you don't have any mechanism to pick and choose which one's good. Kat Dwyer, this is excellent stuff. Really appreciate your time talking about this. We'll get you back sometime to update it. But until we see you on Herdtel again, let folks know where they can follow you, uh, your social media, and what you got going on, my friend. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at KatJDwyer. Uh, I share all my writing there. Um, and then you can tune in to my weekly podcast uh, with my co-host, Stephen Torna. It's called the Whiskey Bench Podcast. Um, and we don't just talk about whiskey. We drink whiskey, but then we talk about world events, economics, politics, you name it. Yeah. All those things go better with whiskey, I'm told. Yes. Uh, little lubrication for the tough topics of the day. Uh, that's cat with a K, by the way, kids, when you go to search it up on the Google machine. Uh, her uh, social media is on the lower third graphic there, and we are linking to her piece in the show notes. Cat Dwyer, another one of those great Young Voices contributors. Great conversation. Really appreciate your time today. Thank you, ma'am. Yeah, thank you, Andrew. Yes, back to Hurstel. Okay, fresh face, new topic. We don't talk a whole lot of sports, but sometimes it bleeds over into culture and politics. And boy, this short story sure did. Uh, he's a contributor 
at Ordinary-Times.com. Also writes a couple other places, writing about football and things like that. Good guy. Occasionally makes pizzas. Sometimes he even gets paid to do so. Good guy about food also. Uh, ben Sears, how are you, my friend? Doing very well. Thank you for having me on. Uh, thrilled to have you on. You're writing in Ordinary Times. Okay, let me just tee it up this way. So you have two of the five national championship holding coaches in college football basically going at each other in the media. This doesn't happen a whole lot, but when it does, this has been pretty spectacular. Turn the noise down for us. What's going on here? Because we have Nick Saban. Uh, we have Jimbo Fisher. Used to be buddies. Uh, they're from the same part of the country. There's a long history between these two fellers. Uh, but turn down the noise for us. What's actually going on here and what got it to the point that it's actually crossing over in the regular media now? Well, the funny thing is that you say they used to be buddies. Um, back in LSU, and I can't remember if it was 2003 or 2004, but either way, they won a national championship together. Uh, Jimbo was the offensive coordinator for Saban, and they did quite well. Uh, a couple of days ago, uh, Jimbo's calling Saban a narcissist, telling him despicable, telling saying that everybody that he's ever worked with uh, would kind of back him up on this and then there's and saying that there's a reason why he'd never work with him again uh, unfortunately you can go to 2018 and you can see jimbo waiting for an hour outside of the uh the locker room for the national championship alabama team to say what a great job Saban did and to congratulate him it, this is a weird situation i've not seen it, you don't want to say popcorn time, but I've not seen two guys go at each other like this. And Sankey, the uh, the SEC commissioner, seems to have shut it down. Um, it was about to get better when Lane Kiffin was scheduled for the uh, the Dan Patrick show, and you you can only imagine where that would have gone because Lane Kiffin is one of the more interesting uh, uh, voices, <laughs> specifically because he doesn't say what he's supposed to say one of the most interesting voices in college football. Um, and then on top of that, you have the, uh, the unaligned now uh, Steve Spurrier, who came in and said, basically, Saban didn't say anything that, that was untrue. Saban said, uh, Saban said specifically what happened. So you've got this weird situation where Jimbo Fisher, Fisher is having a very, very uh, bad reaction to people pointing out that what he did is what he did and it was legal and it was fine it's just not exactly the spirit of the law but there nobody's saying he broke any rules uh he's saying that uh, that Saban is accusing his players of breaking the rules but my reading is that that's just not the case now of course we're talking about the ability of players to license themselves this has completely changed uh, college sports because now there's a ton of money the accusation you took to it in your piece ordinary-times.com the accusation has been as well it's always been this way now it's just going to be out in the public and we're going to know who's paying who you kind of detailed this article to the people who thinks the whole system's corrupt i'll be honest i'm one of them uh we have the long-running joke with our lsu friends of they ask what kind of season they're having i was like i don't know what's your salary cap this year um, this is this is stuff that's been going on for years. Let's just be adults here, especially in the SEC. Everybody accuses everybody. There's been some really ugly investigations uh, into the specifically SEC schools over the years. Um, we can go back further before yours and mine day, of course, you know, Southern Methodists and the death penalty and all that. 
we know there's a lot of ugly stuff in college athletics. We know money is the root of a lot of that ugly stuff. Is that the case, though? Is it just all corrupt and everybody's getting paid, or is the truth a little more nuanced than that? I just don't think it's as corrupt as people think. I'm not saying it's not corrupt. I, I, I do think that there's yeah, there's money exchanging hands. There's um, there's people enticing people to go to places where they other was, otherwise wouldn't go to. But, um, you know, as I wrote in the, uh, in the Ordinary Times piece, imagine you're a college player who thinks you're going to be the greatest pro ever, and it just doesn't work out. What, what's, your, what's your second option? And your second option to me would be to go to, uh, to sports broadcasting. So if you go to sports broadcasting, now it's you in competition with everybody else that ever put on a jockstrap, and you need to, uh, you, you need to separate yourself. So why, considering all of the busts in the history of college football, why hasn't there been just this overwhelming, um, I don't know, well, it should be waves of people sitting there and, and busting the story, doing the great, um, the, the great whistleblower and saying, this is what college football is. And we've had a couple, small, but they were never backed up. Uh, this is this is an amazing cover up if there you know, if it doesn't exist. And so I, you know, I, I do kind of think that the idea that college football is corrupt is is overblown. I'm not saying that there isn't, you know, there aren't dollars handed over under the table or the uh, what do they call it, the hundred dollar handshake at the end of the game. You, you, you get a touchdown and somebody shakes your hand and then you walk away with an extra hundred. I'm not saying that's not happening. But um, I just don't think it's to the extent that it it, 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 it is expected to be. Ben Sears, uh, writer at Ordinary-Times.com, joining us, talking a little college football that's spilled out into a lot of other areas. Uh, you kind of answered your own question in your own piece here, though, because you said if there is corruption, you went to a uh, comparison that's probably a little harsh for college football, but I, some of these coaches, I wouldn't doubt they'd probably kill over it. Uh, you talked about organized crime, the Omerta, the Sicilians, uh, and we're not talking about the Princess Bride ones that just do logic games with cups of poison, although Saban probably would try that with certain people. You never know. Uh, you're talking about the Omerta. Would it have to be a code of silence thing? Now, I think the coaches probably have that that the coaches know, you know, everybody knows where the bodies are buried. That's a close-knit fraternity. Everybody knows each other. There's not that many of those guys at that level. But I kind of agree with you. I don't think you could keep all the staff quiet. I don't think you could keep all the players quiet, all the people at the the boosters. They're all, you know, they're all attention-hungry people. I think the whole thing's corrupt, but I'm kind of, I want to hear you out on this because I agree with you. It's like, that's a lot of people to try to keep quiet about something, isn't it? Well, I think I, 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 Lane Kiffin said he uh, he was speechless after what Jimbo Fisher said. Um, I, I don't know which way that works. Uh, does that mean that he was speechless because they have this code of silence or not? But, you know, I, I, I was it was kind of tongue in cheek. But the whole idea of Omerta and this 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 code of silence among criminals is that you never say anything. You never speak but they back it up with actual force. Whereas there's, there's none of that in college football. So I, I, I would wonder if there is uh, such a, 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 a culture of, of, of not criminality, I guess, uh, but such a culture of rule breaking, why hasn't it come out? 
it doesn't make sense to me. You've got uh, so Kiffin, Kiffin comes out and says he's he's speechless. Uh, I think the greatest interview that we'll never see was Kiffin booked for the Dan Patrick show because Kiffin wanted to speak the Sabin versus Fisher or Sabin versus Fisher uh, Fisher argument, and uh, Sankey, the SEC commissioner, shut that down. He 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 came in. Uh, he said this argument ends and, you know, it's probably for the right, but um, I would have loved to have heard that. I just don't think that uh, that the Sicilian Omerta comes close to what we've got right now in the SEC or, you know, college football period. We'll continue with our friend Ben Sears, more about this Nick Saban, Jimbo Fisher, college football and culture thing right after this. It's hard to tell continues. Uh, let me ask you this. We've been talking about Jimbo's comments. Let's talk about Nick Saban for just a second. There's been some criticism of his side here, of course, depending. And of course, let's, you know, again, let's be adults. Everybody's got a, their dogs in this fight because, you know, everybody loves Saban or hates Saban because he's the top guy for a long time now. He's got all the rings. Uh, part of the argument against Saban here is like, look, when you're that guy, you're the all time winningest coach, you're the gold standard. You cannot go on TV and do stuff like that, irregardless of whether it's true or not, irregardless of the facts of the case. When you're that guy, you can't do this publicly. Uh, do you think that's a fair criticism? And to be fair here, you're an Alabama guy. But at the same time, uh, is there merit to that argument? I'm an absolute partisan, and there is definitely merit to that argument. Um, I think Saban just didn't consider what he was doing. But at the same time, I don't think – Saban was saying anything about Fisher or about Texas A&M or about Deion Sanders, because we forget that. He was also included in this. Saban's got a habit of commenting to the press and saying things to people beyond them. When Saban's uh, upset that his his team is being told that they're the greatest thing the world's ever, ever seen, he goes to the press and he talks about rat poison and he talks about that. And the message not is not for the press. It's not for me. It's not for you. It's for his team. I think Saban went to uh, to the press and he said something in the sense that he was doing that. He said, look at what Fisher did. Look at what Texas A&M did. Look at what Deion Sanders has done at JSU. And I think he was speaking in a larger sense to the NCAA. He was saying, this is broken. This is a guy. And th this is another thing with Saban. He is he has repeatedly pointed out rule changes that he doesn't like. And people have said he's complaining because he's going to lose his tactical advantage or something like that. But instead what's happened, I mean, you look at the, uh, the, the transfer portal, instead what's happened is he's taken it to his advantage. He has repeatedly said, this is going to alter college football. And a lot of people think that this was him complaining, but I think in a lot of ways, this was his warning. Uh, he, the transfer portal is the perfect example got to see the offensive weapons that he uh, he got this year he's got the uh the number two running back in the nation i believe he's on hinge to get the number one wide receiver he's got two wide receivers from in conference to add to his team he's got a tight end that'll blow your mind um i 
personally, like, like we said, I am a partisan. I kind of wish he would have paid attention to the offensive line, but you know, he's, he, he knows what he's doing better than I did, but uh, he, he has consistently looked at rule changes and he has objected to them. And he has consistently be to been told that he's complaining. And then when the rule changes actually happen, he's demonstrated how they can be manipulated because I mean, it's, it's not his fault. Once you have a rule change, you have a rule change and he, he's going to play by the rules. You know, I, I, I feel like Saban um, looking at this with Fisher is screaming to the world, these collaborations, instead of taking uh, individual boosters, they're, they're kind of getting together, putting together a bunch of money. And then you come to a, a team, you have a base salary. You sign with the team, you have a base salary. Uh, you can still do the name, image, and likeness, but as Greg Sankey told um, Yahoo Finance, you know, so the SEC commissioner was talking to Yahoo Finance. He was looking specifically at um, just flat-out payments. They're not even doing ads. And uh, this is, that's paper thin because all they have to do is say, uh, you know, come spend five minutes at this car dealership and smile. Here's a picture. And now you've done an ad. And you can pay somebody whatever they want. You know, I, I, I think Saban was, again, giving out a warning because from what I've read, Alabama is putting together their collective. Yeah, and, and we saw this with USC too, which has been mopping the floor with people with the transfer portal, uh, which, you know, again, nothing against Oklahoma, but LA, Oklahoma, you, you know, it, college football, you've been writing about college football for a long time. The traditional powers are always, you know, the same traditional powers yeah. from the 60s and 70s pretty much are the traditional powers now with a few exceptions. You get an Oregon every once in a while where somebody just dumps a ton of money into them. But, you know, USC, Ohio State, Alabama, uh, yeah. you know, the, these are the traditional powers. And when you give the kids the option, which is what these are doing with the transfer portal and now the money on top of it, how much of this is just math of like, hey, the bigger the name of the school, the more money I'm going to make? Doesn't that just come down to a lot of this? Because we're seeing it with USC. We're seeing it with Miami starting to get good. I bet you Miami doesn't have any trouble getting kids in the transfer portal. You go, and, and, I, and I'm look. I don't like Miami. I'm an old big East guy. You know, I can't, I was I was at the game when Randy Shannon got hit with a trash can. I was standing 20 feet from it. Okay, like I don't. I'm just saying, and that was too far, by the way. I'm just saying, those are the power schools. If you're going to start giving kids choice, which is what the transfer portal does, and you start giving them money, which is what the NILs are doing, they're they're going to flock to those big-name schools anyway because that's where the money's always been. But it's been that way for 40, 50 years. Maybe we're overreacting a little bit, and this is just going to have to shake out a little bit. Well, my, my thought is, you say USC. I think I think a big part of USC's bump is coming from the fact that uh, that Riley quit at Oklahoma, and he went over to uh, to USC, and he took some players with him. And I think the expectation is that they're going to be great. Now they built on that. I, I think USC is going to be a giant in the next, next couple of years. But otherwise, yeah, all of the big schools are going to do well. But what was pointed out with this Texas A&M thing is that A&M has, uh, you know, forgive me half of Texas because you're going to hate me for this, but you're an 8-14. and 14. You always have been. Uh, th th there are the occasional years where something's great. So how did you do this? How did you sign the number one recruiting class in the nation? How did you pull the two top recruits out of Tennessee where you've only pulled two recruits out of Tennessee in the history of your program? 
Uh, how did it, and this is, this is the most interesting. There's a defensive tackle. God, for, uh, I think his name is Nolan. Okay. So a defensive tackle, the number one recruit, defensive recruit in the nation um, is fr from the Memphis area. Uh, I can't, I can't remember if he was on the Mississippi side, but anyway, it was, it, it was the Memphis area. And suddenly his dad gets a job in Knoxville and oh my gosh, we all know he's going to go to Tennessee. You know, college has a, 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 an awful underbelly, but we're, we're looking at it and we're seeing it. It's like, all right, probably can't prove it, but somebody pulled some levers and this is going to get this kid to sign from Tennessee. And then he doesn't. So whatever it took to get this kid from Memphis to move 400 miles away with his family on the eve of his signing was not enough to keep him from signing with College Station at Texas A&M. And Texas A&M, you know, they were, they were above board. It, this, is, this is why this Jimbo Fisher thing is so weird. They were above board. It looks like they spent about $25 million getting players to come there. And they say they didn't buy them. Um, I, my thought is if, I'm a, if I was last year's class, I'm pissed off. Um, you know, I, I'm like that AT&T customer that says, well, why don't I get a free phone? Because, because you're attracting new customers. And I, I don't get it, but I, I, I do think there's just all sorts of oddities with that class. There are about three or four other five stars that did it. And AM did not have many five stars in their history. And I think they got five or six this year. Yeah. What but, again, but again, the money, that's all allowed now. There's nothing illegal there. They're not cheating. And, and that's, that's the whole trick to this thing is because everybody's like, well, they paid them. And we're all kind of ingrained to be like, oh, you're not supposed to pay players, but this is all completely allowed now. And there's no, I think they're going to crack down after this year. I think they're going to start putting some bumper rails on this, like the bowling alley. Um, yeah. They're, they're going to have to, but right now it's the wild West. They Jimbo didn't do anything wrong here. So it's kind of like, all right, Saban lost his mind. Jimbo lost his mind, but there's really no wrongdoing, at least letter of the law wise here. Well, see, that's, that's what is so weird about this to me is, is Saban flat out said, um, you know, beforehand, or we, we didn't give anybody any guarantees beforehand. Uh, he says, he says that Fisher did and Fisher went nuts, but according to the rules right now, why Fisher was completely within the rules. And if you watch that, and did you, I don't know if you watched it. It's, it's, uh, it's, yeah, a you can't miss it. It's that, everywhere. <laughs> well, he's, he I mean, looks, it's not, I'm a man, Mike Gundy, but it's way, way up there. Yeah, well, actually, the I'm a man. See, oh, that's a great contrast because the I'm a man, Mike Gandhi, Gandhi, he was mad, he was angry, he went forward. Uh, I, I thought Fisher was defensive, and I don't understand why. He was, he, he could have just as easily come out and say, you know what, that's right, and just moved on. I think it was because it was Saban. And it's just, if it was anybody but Saban, it probably wouldn't have cut that way. But that's that's my humble but accurate opinion. I think Saban just took something that was about a three or a four and cranked it to nine. But that's just my opinion. Uh, ben Sears joining us, ordinary-times.com. He's wrote it. One of, one of my favorite titles we ever done, even though we don't usually don't want to do a niche title, but this one was too good. I let it go. The title is, wouldn't it be great if we could get drag Gene Stallings into this? you got to be somewhat Alabama proficient to know what that's about. Uh, go read it, ordinary-times.com. My friend, real quick, 
tell people about what you do. You also do Poets Day every Friday, which is one of my favorite things we've started doing lately. Let people know where your social media is and also your other writing and maybe a little bit about your pizza making prowess, my friend. Uh, yeah, Poets Day is one of my favorite things. Um, I, I'm a huge fan of a particular author out of Scotland. He's, he's, his name is Ian Rankin, and he writes uh, police procedural type things. And his officers have something called uh, Poets Day, which is piss off early tomorrow's Saturday. In other words, they just get out of they get out of the office as early as they can. So what I've done is uh, I've I've featured a poet, but before I featured the poet, I find a scam, some way to, for you to trick your way out of the office or out of school or whatever it is. Um, I think it's fun. It's stupid and, and silly. And then I. Um, Sometimes I actually analyze the poem. Sometimes I just throw it out because it's a good poem and it doesn't need my. It doesn't need me. Uh, otherwise, I've written about um, food and wine at various places. Um, show up at Roll Bama Roll. I used to be a regular there, but I'm kind of backing off that right now, just uh, for no other reason than I did uh, 140 posts over there about food and wine. And I kind of ran out of ideas. Uh, there's a new guy over there. And if, if I can plug him, uh, the guy's name is Bakhtian, and he's fantastic. Um, he'll be he'll be coming around next football season. So, yeah, I'm writing here, there, and wherever I can. It's fun. Yeah, Ben, S-Y-S on the Twitter.com. It's right under him there on the lower third graphic. Can, 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 can I mention yeah. real quick on the S-Y-S? Yeah. Uh, M-S-Y-S? Because uh, my youngest son just asked me about the, that today, because uh, I've still got that. Years ago, I had a website called Might Stain Your Shirt, and um, that's that's uh, MSYS. I was watching a James May special, and he was he hated a wine, and he was talking to uh, to the winemaker, and his friend said, "You know what? I know this winemaker. You can't say anything bad about this, even though you hate it." And he said. Um, so, so when he was talking to the guy, he says, you know, this might not stain your shirt. And it occurred to me that great things might stain your shirt. And uh, so I lost that website because I stopped paying attention to it. And now it's some uh, Korean gambling site. <laughs> but MSYS. Good stuff, my friend. Uh, ben Sears, make sure you're reading his writing. Really clever, creative writing uh he has a way with phrases like you got to read this uh one of the comments on twitter on this post about uh alabama and, and the nick saban thing was actually like i don't know anything about sports but the writing's so good i still like this so that's a pretty good compliment my friend uh ben sears thank you for the time today sir appreciate it had a great time thank you thank you Welcome back to her tell. Okay, she's one of our favorites. We lean on her for sound legal advice, but she is not your lawyer, so nothing she says should be considered legal advice to you. Uh, senior editor at ordinary-times.com, a member of the bar in good standing. She's a lawyer. She's smarter than us. We're going to have her explain this ruling to us like we're five years old. M. Carpenter back on her tell. How are you, ma'am? I'm very well, Andrew. Thank you. How are you? I'm just having a habeas kind of day. How about you? <laughs> I've had better. Uh, okay, so the Supreme Court came out with this rule. Uh, I follow a lot of what we kind of jokingly call law Twitter. 
uh, kind of a collection of our various lawyer friends online for a good reason, because they give good perspective on a lot of things. I've never seen uniform outrage at a ruling like this. Like we've seen divisive stuff like the abortion stuff over the last few weeks. Like every single lawyer I follow and talk to was just like, what is this? I was that the same reaction you got from this court ruling uh, in this uh, Arizona Department of Corrections ruling? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, it made me very angry. It was um, I've been very angry at the Supreme Court a lot lately. And, and this one may have <laughs> put me over the top. I've defended the court as an institution quite quite a bit over the years and, you know, argued against saying that all justices are, are partisan and that they're only ruling in their ideological uh, druthers. And this this makes that very difficult to, to continue. Okay, what is it about this case? Because, and by the way, this was progressive lawyers, this was uh, conservative lawyers, like all of them were like, we don't like this one. So let's, let's get into the nitty gritty of this ruling. Um, it was a 6-3 ruling. <laughs> Just where do you even want to start with this? Because it's complicated. You basically have two guys that are on death row out in Arizona this is not a conviction hearing. This is a hearing about their representation. Walk us through it kind of slowly so we are not know what we're dealing with. Before they get to the Supreme Court, why is this kind of a hearing important? Explain habeas to folks and kind of just give us the background here. Okay. Uh, yeah. So let's say you're on trial in state court for a crime and you have a bad lawyer doesn't investigate your case, crucial facts that could show your innocence. They're never presented to the jury. So this and lots of mistakes are made. You're convicted. You go to prison. You go through all your direct appeals, the, you know, the appeal stage right after trial, and you lose them all. Um, so your conviction at that point is final. And, then, and now you are in what they call the post-conviction stage. And that's kind of confusing maybe to a lay person because you probably think of conviction is happening when the trial is over and you're found guilty, you're convicted. But technically, you're not post-conviction until all of your direct appeals are exhausted. Um, usually that means you've gone all the way up to your state's highest court, their state Supreme Court, um, and all of your appeals have been denied. You are now, your conviction is final. So now you're in the post-conviction stage, and most state courts allow you to file a, post a petition for post-conviction relief. And some states call it a habeas, um, and it's also called a habeas at the federal level, habeas corpus, petition for writ of habeas corpus, which is basically get me back before the court. I have things that I want to, to raise. Um, so you file for your post-conviction relief in state court, and you have a new lawyer, but he's also a bad lawyer, and he doesn't bring up the fact that you had a bad lawyer at your trial. In other words, he does not raise the ineffective assistance of counsel argument for you at your post-conviction hearing. So you, you exhaust your state post-conviction efforts and you've lost those and, and you're, you now have to move on to the next stage, which is to file a habeas corpus in federal court. And finally, you say, hey, my conviction is wrong because I had an ineffective lawyer who did not do their job. Now, normally you cannot raise an issue for the first time at the federal habeas proceeding. If you didn't raise it in state court, then you have forfeited your right to bring it up in federal court, and that's called procedural default. But back in 2011, in Martinez versus Ryan, the court had said there was an exception to this, and that's the Sixth Amendment right to counsel, and that makes sense. If your post-conviction lawyer failed to argue that your trial counsel was ineffective, 
then your post-conviction lawyer was also ineffective. So it's not really your fault that the issue wasn't raised. So Martinez says you can go ahead and raise it for the first time during your federal habeas petition. So here comes Justice Thomas and his merry band of conservative justices in this week's opinion. And they say that Martinez may allow you to bring that claim of ineffective counsel that your previous bad lawyers didn't raise, but, but we're not gonna let you present any evidence to prove it. So let that sink in. You can go into court and say, but I, I didn't have an effective lawyer and the courts won't let you put any evidence on this. So what is the chances do you think that they're going to agree with you that you had an effective lawyer at trial when they're not going to let you prove that in any way? So they rely, the court is relying on USC 2254E2, which is the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act from 1996, which is the law that says federal court can't hold an evidentiary hearing on a petitioner's claim that was not brought up in state court. But that law was in effect in 2011 when Martinez came out. So Martinez, you know, kind of recognized an exception to that. Um, but here's the rub. There is no constitutional right to counsel for post-conviction proceedings. Once your direct appeals are done and your conviction is final, you don't have that triggered Sixth Amendment right to counsel for a habeas proceeding. They're actually considered like quasi-civil procedures. Um, so, you know, your lawyer in that stage, if that if they mess up, the court says that's attributed to you. It's not actually your fault, but it's now your fault legally. Your lawyer's poor performance is your fault. And that's not actually a new concept. A lawyer's mistakes can be held against their clients. That's not unusual. You know, if you um, somebody files a lawsuit against you and you hire a lawyer and they drag their feet, don't file an answer in time and you get a default judgment against you, you know, it's held against you even though it was your lawyer's mistake. That's not a new concept, but there has been an exception when the mistake is because of a constitutionally ineffective counsel. So what the court said here in this opinion is that because there is no right to counsel in a habeas or in post-conviction relief, then it can't be a constitutionally ineffective counsel argument because you didn't have a constitutional right to have that counsel, even though the ineffectiveness is going back to your trial court. The fact that your post-conviction lawyer didn't bring it up is not ineffective counsel constitutionally. So that's that's the crux of this case. But what makes it so infuriating to me anyway? What what this opinion is has been so inflammatory? There's several things. First of all, I find it very uh, frustrating in, in in any case, any criminal law decision, criminal case when the opinion goes to great lengths to describe in detail the horrific and disgusting crimes that the defendants in the cases are accused of or convicted of. Almost like they're trying to justify the opinion by pointing out how terrible these people are. And that's the case in, in this. And this, these are two men facing the death penalty. They're two different cases and they, are, they have horrific facts laid out. Um, it's not necessary. Um, <laughs> the criminal the criminal law system applies to you no matter what you're convicted of. So the fact that they lay out in detail the, the terrible things that these men are charged with that's that's number one. That's just inflammatory. Um, <laughs> one of the things that I saw on Twitter, which was uh, so I know I'm not the only one who was disgusted by it, is there is a footnote uh, in Justice Thomas's opinion. It was Justice Thomas who wrote this, and 
in it, he, he brings up the fact that the petitioner, the defendants in one of the two cases had said, you know, speaking of procedural default, when we were arguing all of this in the district court at the lower level, the state didn't even bring up the fact that I hadn't raised this issue in lower court. Justice Thomas's footnote says, well, we have the discretion to forgive a failure to raise the issue in the court below, so we're going to. So think about that. You are going to potentially be put to death because uh, failing to raise an issue, and we're going to let that happen but we're not going to hold the state to the same standard with a much less dire outcome. They didn't do their job. They didn't bring up this issue below, even though they were supposed to. We have the authority to forgive them for that. So the state here is forgiven. And this opinion is very heavy on the state's rights and what a burden it is on the state to be tied up in litigation over these claims and how they are. They don't want to step on the state's toes by uh, interfering with convictions any more than is, is necessary. And you know, very differential to state power and state rights. And that's that's very frustrating as well. And just the fact that they want to be this um, pedantic when it is death on the line, uh, it never sits well with me. You know, I think that when somebody is facing the death penalty, that is not the time to um, nitpick about whether or not uh, they should have um, raise this, like, what is it going to hurt in the long run to let these men put on the evidence that perhaps they did not have effective counsel? And, and in at least one of these cases, from what I have read, there is some pretty strong evidence in the defendant's favor that if the jury had heard it at his trial may have led to a different result. So basically, they are going to allow the state at this point to proceed to executions for uh, men because they had bad lawyers. And as much as I, I hate it, there are bad lawyers doing capital cases and appellate work, not so much with you know public defenders. I've talked about them before, especially when they're at the level of doing these kinds of cases. They're uh, very competent, great lawyers. But there are uh, a lot of there are other attorneys that take these cases um, and that are not qualified to do it. And it, it not, they mean well, but it happens. There is unfortunately some bad lawyering that goes on here and you know you, you might face death for that. And the fact that you know, you're being held accountable for the failures of your lawyer, your educated lawyer, when you may not have much education yourself, your lawyer makes a mistake and they say, well, that's your fault. You know, that, it, it, that's one thing when you're fighting over money, but we are fighting for their lives here. So I've gone on and on, so I'll stop there. But that, that's what's going on, and that's why I'm angry and why so many other attorneys are angry about this opinion. I'm Andrew Donson on the M. Carpenter Show, where she has just gone 11 <laughs> minutes on Shin versus Ramirez, but that's fine. That's what we bring her on for. Um, Sotomayor, in her dissent, uh, said this, that, this was, and I'm quoting her here, an extreme malfunction that the prejudicial deprivation of a right that constitutes the foundation of our adversarial system. She's talking about representation here. Um, I, I take it that's how you see it as well. But what do you think she means by a malfunction? Because this gets into legal terms. Like you said, this is a habeas hearing. It's very different from a trial. This isn't about the conviction itself. It's about how you got to the conviction. Um, when you get into the nuts and bolts of these legal things, how much is it important to make sure that the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed? Because the general public, like me, I'm not a lawyer, 
you know, we don't understand all the procedural stuff, but that's what the court does a lot of rulings on, on the procedural stuff, on the nitty gritty details. How important is it to get these things right? And how surprising is it to you that when something like this, something fundamental like representation comes up, that we get a ruling like this? It's not surprising because I've seen it. You know, I've seen I've seen death penalty cases upheld over um, other things, you know, missing a, a filing deadline by a few days or, you know, things like that. So it doesn't surprise me to see, um, you know, something so serious and being trivialized and, and you know, dismissed out of hand for um, technical reasons or, or trivialities. So it doesn't surprise me, but it it is a malfunction of the system for this to happen. Um, and every state, you know, and I don't want to get too nitpicky, but there were parts of, of these cases that had that that hinged on Arizona state laws and how those laws are drafted and what they say. And so you're going to have 50 different versions of that at minimum. So um, it's hard sometimes to apply a blanket rule um, across the state. The law likes to be specific. The court likes to interpret laws very narrowly and, and very specifically. And that can result in inconsistent outcomes. Yeah, talking to him, Carpenter, our good friend, senior editor at Ordinary-Times.com, an attorney. Uh, we're going to take a quick break because we went a little long there. Uh, we're going to continue to talk about this case, Shin versus Ramirez. Uh, also getting to a little bit more about representation, how it's fundamental to our system, but also how it keeps coming up over and over again. We start talking about the lower level problems in the criminal justice system, how representation at those early stages and lower level of the criminal justice system is greatly affecting a lot of the problems we're seeing even in the headlines. More with M. Carpenter on Her Tell right after this. Donaldson, uh, joined by our legal expert, M. Carpenter. She's a frequent contributor to this program, uh, and she is the senior editor at Ordinary-Times.com. You can catch her writing there. Um, let's get to some basics here, because this case, this Supreme Court case is about representation. How big of a problem is representation in the criminal justice system right now? You've been a prosecutor. Um, you've done uh, like all attorneys have to do. You've done uh, 
work as a public defender type work where you have to do the pro bono work. How big a problem is this? Because when we start talking about things like bail reform, we start talking about things like pretrial confinement, we start talking about how the criminal justice system does a better job of making criminals than deterring criminals. A lot of those streams start crossing and kind of have their headwaters with representation, don't they? Yeah. Um, you know, it's one thing when you have an inexperienced attorney representing you in traffic court. Um, there, the, the consequences are not so dire. The stakes are not so high. Um, and we have to learn somewhere, right? You know, criminal attorneys don't just go into court their first time with, uh, you know, knowing all the ins and outs and, and not ever going to make a mistake. But when we're talking about more serious crimes where the stakes are higher, where we're talking about life in prison or death, uh, there needs to be the most effective counsel possible in these cases. And the people who dedicate their lives to this kind of work are generally very competent and, and uh, very well versed in these cases and they're going to do a great job even the best lawyer makes mistakes okay and so even the best lawyer at a trial could lead to a valid ineffective assistance of counsel claim so it's not necessarily that the lawyers were bad or negligent although that is definitely the case at times um it's just there's so many little things mechanisms in the courtroom that uh, can lead to an error. Judges, you know, judges are reversed all the time and they're supposed to be the legal expert in the room, but they make mistakes. There's always gonna be mistakes. So I think that that's the area where there needs to be deference and to not even listen to the evidence of the, that the defendant has or the argument that they have of that, you know, listen, there's all this evidence out there. My lawyer didn't even bring it up. And when you have, in, like in these cases, multiple levels of attorneys who have failed to bring that evidence up, I think you want to look at why did that happen? Were they lacking in funds to hire an investigator? Did they not have the money to pursue the, those, those avenues? And it's always a quirk of the system, especially if you're a court-appointed attorney, which a lot of them are in these cases. When you want money for something, when you need an expert or you need an investigator, who decides whether or not you get that money? The state. The judge, the state, the very system that whose mercy your client finds themselves at, they decide whether or not you're going to, to get those funds. You have to ask the judge. And the, the prosecutor has the opportunity to stand there and argue against it, you know? And that's, that's a, a serious disadvantage to a defendant in our system. How much um, pretrial confinement and simple procedural stuff could be cleaned up by changing how that system of representation works. I know there's not enough lawyers to go around, um, and there's especially not enough good lawyers, and I'm not trying to disparage anybody, but same thing with basketball coaches or shoe salesmen or whatever, you know, there's the really good, and then there's the really bad, and there's this vast gulf in between on the spectrum of good to bad, right? It's like any other profession. There's only so many good ones to go around. Um, is there any kind of reform or regulatory or legislative thing we can do here to take that burden off? Because it sure seems to me that a lot of the issues we're having in, in the criminal justice system starts there at those entry level kind of, you know, the initial hearings, the indictments, things like that. There, there seems to be so much room for reform there, but there doesn't really seem to be any answers coming on to what we can do about any of it. Right. And public defenders, especially in the lower level in the trial courts, their their caseloads are humongous. And I've seen um, experienced, uh, very competent public defender, at least one I know of in, in my area, 
who lost his license for a while because he had a client sit in jail for months and he had not filed any motions or, and that was not purposeful or, int or intentional on his part. It was simply a matter of one fell through the cracks for him. Um, inexcusable and you know he he had to have received some sort of a punishment from the bar for that and he should have um, but when you overload lawyers with cases like this that's what's going to happen and when um, you know your clients don't have bail and they're sitting in jail um, you know that impedes their ability to contact you it impedes your ability you can't spend all day sitting in the jail interviewing your clients so it impacts you know how much time you get to spend with your client to prepare um, it, it definitely clogs up the system so I don't think I think bail reform on lower level cases is definitely uh, an avenue and into some higher level cases depending on the facts of the case and, and what they're actually charged with. Now do I do I think that anyone charged with capital murder is going to find themselves in a position where they uh, should have bail reform uh, applied to them and that they're not going to sit in jail probably not going to ever happen. Um, but yeah, there there are things that can be done to ease the burden on the attorneys, which would in turn would help the clients. Uh, M. Carpenter joining us, senior editor at Ordinary-Times.com and an attorney. Um, you've been on both sides of this. You've been a prosecutor. You've been a trial attorney. Uh, you've done other kind of legal work. How big of a problem is having good lawyers right now? Because we keep seeing the stats about law schools. We know the overarching problem of the cost of secondary education anyway, the cost of law schools even more so in most cases. You've talked about your own path and difficulty in becoming a lawyer. Um, how big of an issue is this going forward? Because if there's not enough attorneys to go around, then these representational issues are going to get even worse. The projection is that uh, law is going to have an issue with lawyers going forward. Talk about how that affects both sides, both the prosecution side and the defense side, because again, uh, this is supposed to be an adversarial system, which means those are supposed to be equally matched sides. And that's just not the case when we get rulings like this, is it? Correct. Um, you know, public defending doesn't pay very well. Um, it pays even less if you're not part of a public defender's office, but you're on what we call the appointment list or in federal court, they call it the panel attorneys, where you know you get assigned cases that for whatever reason, the local public defender's office can't take it, either they're busy or they have a conflict. Um, and so those what you have there are people who are kind of doing criminal law part time. So um, and they're getting paid very little. It's been a few years, but as far as I know, they haven't raised the rates. When I was doing criminal defense, you made $45 an hour for outside of court work and $65 an hour for being in court. That sounds like a lot of money to most people, you know, an hourly rate. But when you think that private counsel is paid, you know, <laughs> five times that or more, um, you, you, you know, you, you started to maybe at times get what you pay for. Um, and so if you can't, if you have inexperienced lawyers or lawyers that, that come into that profession and they find out they're not going to make good money there, they're going to go do something else. So you might lose the cream of the crop. You might lose the better lawyers because they're going to need to go where the money is because, you know, they have student loans to pay. Um, so you do run a risk of not having quality representation. And when you don't have quality representation on the defendant's side, you know, that means that the prosecution side, um, you have the potential for errors there. If you don't have a defense attorney to stand up and object or, or to uh, stop a prosecutor from making a mistake that violates that defendant's rights, 
what's supposed to happen and often does happen is that person's conviction is going to be reversed on the other end because there wasn't a competent defense counsel to raise the issue or effectively in court. And so, you know, the prosecution is going to end up losing out with hopefully when a um, appellate court looks at that case. So, you know, you need good, good lawyers on both sides and prosecutors offices pay a little more than defense than criminal defense, uh, public defenders offices, but it's not, it's still not a lot of money comparatively in the legal profession. Back to where we started with the uh, Shin versus Ramirez case. Uh, what kind of case law is going to have to articulate through the system to get something like this reviewed again? Because now, now it's done. So now we're back to that precedent word again. Uh, this is going to be the standard for a while. What kind of case law would it take to get this reviewed again by maybe a future court or a re-examining of this court? I don't think the future is in case law for this issue. I think it's a legislative issue. Um, I think that the statute that they relied on is what they need to to revisit here. Um, there are two exceptions in that statute for when the underlying um, lower court not being raised in the lower court can be excused. And this court says that these two individuals, their situations don't fit either of those exceptions. It would not be difficult to um, add an exception to that that would include um, when counsel is ineffective. My concern is with that um, Sixth Amendment right to counsel when they're saying, well, you didn't have a right to counsel at this stage, so any errors that that lawyer made are your fault. Whereas if that had been in the trial court at that level, the errors would be the lawyer's fault and not held against the defendant. So um, my worry is that that would be expanded, that we'll start um, looking at that right to counsel with less reverence than we do now. Yeah, M. Carpenter, always excellent stuff. One of our favorite people, uh, senior editor at Ordinary-Times.com. Let folks know where your Twitter feed is because we can't get you to write anything to save our lives lately because I'm joking, I'm joking. She's busy saving the world with her day job right now, uh, but she'll be back soon. Uh, let folks know where they can find your old stuff at Ordinary Times and your social media. You're one of the best uh, Twitter followers out there. Uh, so share that with folks until they get you back on her tell again. Sure. Yes, you can find my writing at ordinary-times.com. And I know uh, I'm not as prolific as I would like to be or as I used to be, but um, like you said, I am busy. So uh, I owe you something one of these days soon, I promise. Uh, but yes, please do find me on Twitter at WVSquireS. That's E-S-Q-U-I-R-E-S-S. -S, and, and give me a follow so that I can catch up with Andrew someday. Uh well, we all have to have dreams. Uh, M. Carpenter, we always appreciate your time. Thank you so much for the legal insight. And uh, we'll have you back again soon next time the Supreme Court does something really hot, which is probably going to be uh, next Tuesday because we got a couple more Tuesdays of this court term to go yet. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you, man. This is a guy I talk to all the time. We're just going to do it on camera now. Jason Reed, he is the head of PR and relations. He's the head of the UK lead 
for Young Voices, somebody I work with behind the scenes quite a bit, working relationship I've really come to treasure. Good guy, but he does a lot of commentating in his own right, especially in UK media, and we got him today. Jason, good to talk to you, my friend. How are you? Good to speak to you, Andrew. I'm doing great, thanks. How are you doing? Yeah, been a while since we've had you on the program. We've had a lot of our other UK friends on. It's good to have you back. Um, let's start with something that's very different between uh, the US and the UK. Uh, free speech, definitely a topic of interest in the UK right now. You have very different laws. You have the same problem, though, that you feel like, and a lot of people in America feel like, free speech is somewhat under assault. You've been writing about this. This is starting to really play out in the digital and online realm over there with some proposed regulation and rulemaking, isn't it? That's right. We have um, in a senior position in government, a woman called Nadine Dorries. Her title, which is quite grandiose, is the Secretary of State for the Department of Culture, Media and Sport. And she is in charge effectively of regulating the Internet as far as the UK government goes. And she has put forward a piece of legislation called the Online Safety Bill, which, depending on your perspective, is either world leading in terms of putting the UK at the forefront of regulation uh, when it comes to tech companies, or it's going to put us behind everybody else because we are going to be regulating the internet much, much more harshly than everyone else. It's gonna do all kinds of things to undermine innovation, investment, to undermine free speech. As you were saying, it's an amazing behemoth of a bill that contains all kinds of different avenues, all kinds of different aspects, targeting various different parts of the ways that tech companies operate. Uh, and I think that a lot has been said in the UK and in the US indeed about the civil liberties angle, about the problems with uh, trying to put tech companies in a box and trying to treat them as publishers and hold them accountable for everything that's said online. And we also have this very worrying age verification mandate. Well, the government denies that it's a mandate, but in practice it very much is, um, which would effectively uh, put a, an 18 plus lock on the door of any website that the government considers to be adult only. And I think this is a, a terrible, terrible proposal that has all kinds of problems, which we will only learn about once it's actually been uh, put into law. Yeah, hold on to that uh, age uh, thought for just a second. We're going to come back to it. But the way they're going to get to the age restriction on this is, and the way you wrote about it in politics.co.uk, we're linking to it in the show notes. Please go read this full piece. Uh, is you say, and I'm quoting you here, it's an essentially tantamount to creating an online ID card for every adult in the UK. Is it really that simple? Are they going to try to identify every single adult using the internet in the UK with this kind of a proposal? Well, this is the, exactly the problem is it really is that simple a solution to such a complex issue. There's been a lot of discussion in this country and I know around the world as well about anonymity online and the problems with anonymous abuse online. And so the rather uh, as a clumsy approach that the government has come up with this sledgehammer to a nut solution is, well, let's just mandate that everyone who goes online has to prove who they are and has to prove that they're an adult in order to access certain parts of the internet so we can hold everyone accountable much more easily. And so it will effectively, as I wrote in the piece, it will lead to mandatory online identification for everyone in the UK who wants to dare to use the internet um, and of course, that is a very, very lofty goal. It's very hard to see how that will actually be enforceable. Are you really going to mandate that someone creating a Twitter account or someone registering to use any website has to provide ID? It does seem like it will create a sub-internet just for the UK um, that we don't have access to a lot of the internet that the rest of the world does because we've got all these very bizarre and very, very harsh 
uh, interventions and rules governing the ways that we can uh, interact with these different websites. It's a very, very simple solution um, that doesn't address any of the, the many problems. A lot of this discussion came about after the, uh, the very tragic incident in which an MP called David Amos was murdered um, in his constituency office a few months ago. Now that was, that was awful and that person who uh, committed that atrocity has been, of course, uh, put on trial and put behind bars for a very long time. But bizarrely, that led to a lot of MPs talking about online abuse. And there were a group of MPs who actually tried to um, push the online ID card law under the name David's Law, named after the, the late Member of Parliament, um, somehow suggesting or implying that if we could crack down on online abuse using an online ID system, that there would have been less danger of, uh, of this MP being killed. Now, I don't see the link there. I think it's a red herring. I think a lot of people who are concerned about free speech online and about basic civil liberties are very, very unhappy about this link being drawn between a real tra tragedy and the issue of violent crime and, uh, and abuse online, which is, is you can't tackle those things in the same way. But the government doesn't seem to realize that. Yeah, we have a joke here in America that any law that has a name attached on it is probably hiding some really bad policy once you get into the nitty gritty of it. I don't know if that applies in the UK. Let's deal with anonymity real quick, though, before we move back to the age thing, because you and I are both people. We uh, write, publish, we do media. Our faces are out there. We use our real names. That's a conscious decision we all make uh, at ordinary times. I have, you know, we do have people that are synonymous that we protect their identities because they're, you know, business people, whatever the case may be. I'm a big proponent of online anonymity. I think it is a key component to free speech. Even the founding fathers of America, when they wrote the Federalist Papers, were using pseudonyms for various reasons. I think that's an important piece. I understand it makes a mess. I understand it doesn't keep things neat and clean. I understand it can be abused. At the same time, freedom is never neat and clean and stays within the lines on things. I think anonymity is a very important fight to have out when we're dealing with things like online ID bills and attempts to crack down on free speech online. What are your thoughts? I, I agree completely. This desire for, uh, as you say, neatness and, and cleanliness in the online debate is something that we see very commonplace in, among uh, authoritarian regimes. This is what the Chinese Communist Party wants, right? They want all of the online discourse and all of the discourse altogether, in fact, to be very neat. They want to be able to trace everything back to everybody so they can hold people very, very accountable for what they say to the point that you don't have any free speech to say what you want at all. But as you say, the, the, if we're going to have free discourse, if we're going to have free speech, it is going to be messy. That is not a bad thing. That's the way it's supposed to work. It's imperative that everyone has the opportunity to access resources, to access websites, to uh, communicate with people anonymously if they want to. If we take away that very, very basic right, and one of the biggest advantages, I would say, of having an internet to begin with, then there's no limit to what we can't do in the name of rolling back civil liberties. And this brings us right back to where we started and what you're writing about this piece, this age thing. I, I get why people go to it because, you know, it's just natural to go like, oh, we're going to protect the children. We do all kinds of things for the children. Uh, the problem with that is, especially when it comes to online, the children know way more about technology than the adults do. I'm telling you, I have teenagers. There's stuff that I try to do online. I just have to go get them. And I do this stuff all day, every day. I, I think it is very wayward to start putting age. The older I get, I'm just going to be honest with you just on a personal level here. The older I get, the less I like age limits on certain things. And I understand things like alcohol, pornography, cigarettes. I get those sorts of things. Yes, you want age limits. But once you get to somebody that's an 18-year-old adult, 
aren't we just getting into na- gatekeeping and nannyism with this sort of stuff, especially with technology where the kids are usually one or two, you know, we're talking about Facebook with the governments. The kids are already two technologies past that. They're on, you know, they're on discord. They're on Twitch. You know, there are, none of them are on Facebook except to talk to their parents. You see what I'm getting at? Like this is moving too fast. This, this just reeks of nannyism to me when we start throwing these age limits on it. And it's mostly a rhetoric tool of, Oh, I'm doing this for the children because otherwise you never let me get away with it. The problem here is that, these complex social and cultural issues and, and the pace of technological innovation, government cannot keep up with either of those. And so when you have the state trying to solve issues like that using regulation, it's always going to be several steps behind. I'm, I'm 21 years old and I regularly ask my, my brother, who's just a few years younger than me, for advice on how to do various technological things that I'm not familiar with. This is It's happening at such a pace that every few years there is some huge innovation. And of course, there are plenty of very easy and accessible ways to get around any age mandate, whether it's VPNs, whether it's some kind of other uh, anonymity online, whether it's, you know, tricking websites into thinking that you're actually in an attic in Israel somewhere rather than where you actually are. Um, And so these kinds of these kinds of uh, cack handed measures to just slap age mandates on things never ever work because the government is not in a position even if it wants to even if it's really committed it's not in a position to regulate our interaction with the internet in that way and there are even more that's on a very base level there are even more complex and detailed proposals uh, issues with this proposal sorry that um, that come out once you dig a little bit into the detail. There was some interesting research done by the Adam, Adam Smith Institute, which is a free market think tank here in the UK. Um, when this proposal last came around, which was when it was floated by Prime Minister Theresa May a few years ago and was nicknamed the Porn Laws uh, after the Corn Laws. And so they, they uncovered the fact that MindGeek would be, is the name of the company that would be providing a lot of these age verification services and MindGeek by pure coincidence also happens to own a number of pornography sites including I think RedTube and, and possibly one other um, and so by pure coincidence I'm sure and nothing else you would have to provide your identification and maybe even credit card details and things like that to the same company that owns the pornography sites that you might be trying to visit using those age verification measures this is just completely backwards this kind of thing can never ever work in practice because there are all these issues with security and with privacy and the this is not the way to tackle an issue like um children accessing adult content online one of the many other issues which i touched on in the piece as well is that you then have to define what adult content is you then have to decide what is the content that children are allowed to see and what they're not Um, and the way that it's defined in the online safety bill by the uk government is very very worrying because they use quote, psychologically harmful content, but they don't really explain what psychologically harmful content is. And so it seems like they're not just going to ban, you know, a few porn sites and leave it at that. It seems like they are giving themselves the power to ban almost everything except for a few extremely colorful and child-friendly websites if they want to, and to restrict access to those unless you hand over your details. So this was never about children to begin with. This is about the nanny state. It's about power. It's about putting in place barriers for ordinary people doing ordinary things like browsing the internet. Yeah. And you mentioned Jason rejoining us. You mentioned communist China a minute ago. They have openly complained about the fact that they can't enforce their internet laws on children because they keep going past their bans on like hours of usage. They're only allowed to game during certain times. They were stealing their grandparents' logins. If 
the evil Chinese Communist Party regime, which can control just about every aspect of life, especially online, can enforce this stuff. There's no way a decently open and free society like Britain is going to be able to do this, is there? That's exactly right. This is one of the few things that gives me hope about the future and about future generations is the way that the younger people, children and teenagers and Generation Z, perhaps, if you want to call them that, respond when these kinds of issues come up. I'm reminded of uh, whatever you think of, of Donald Trump when there was that issue of uh, Donald Trump holding rallies in the US and various children and teenagers on TikTok um, congregating to order lots and lots of free tickets to those rallies and then not turn up so that Donald Trump ended up talking to an empty room. Now, whatever you think of Trump, I think that is hilarious, first of all, and it's a very, very good indication of the spirit that, uh, that young people have when they are confronted with these kinds of um, very, very ill-thought-out regulations. And so I, I just hope that that generational spirit does not go away that we can keep resisting and yes use your vpns yes do whatever you have to do to just continue using the internet continue living your life in the way you want to of course we would never encourage that people break the law um, but nonetheless there are it seems a huge amount of flaws in uh, in this bill and in every other similar bill that comes up in the uk and the us and around the world because the government ministers frankly just don't have the knowledge and the insight that children do into the internet because they're the ones who have grown up grown up using it they're the ones who have grown up uh, with it all around them with it at their fingertips every second of every day and so children are always going to be ahead of the game and that's what gives me hope that perhaps these measures will not uh, succeed in locking away most of the internet as much as the government might want them to yeah and as you touched on in your piece you can also take credit that the uh, people of the uk are overwhelmingly against this almost two-thirds majority by some polling. So you can take some comfort in that as well. Maybe they'll listen to that. Jason Reed, we're going to continue with him after the break, talk a little UK politics. There's been some developments in some of the stories we've been covering over there. We'll ask him about that because he's there or not. We'll find out what's going on the ground. Our friend Jason Reed from Young Voices, right after the break, as her tell continues. Okay, since he's in the UK, I've got to ask him about it because we've been covering it. Uh, Jason rejoining us, uh, UK Young Voices. 
we know that we live in a media age. We know that imagery changes things. We know the Partygate scandal with Boris Johnson. We knew the various sessions of prime minister questions. He's done a lot of tap dancing around these issues. Now we kind of knew what was probably inevitably going to happen. We've got a photo of him actually partying. How much is that going to change this story? Does it change the narrative? Does it refire it up? Does it put more pressure on the prime minister? Now that we got the visual, this is the age we live in. It changes things. What's this going to do to this story now? I'm afraid it won't make a huge amount of difference. It feels like the party gate story has been going for a long, long time. And I, I feel for the first time relatively confident today in saying, I think this is the last development we will see. Um, the Metropolitan Police investigation has concluded. Uh, Sue Gray, the civil servant who was charged with investigating the political aspect of whether Boris Johnson broke the rules or broke the ministerial code, that has concluded as well. She has this morning published her report in full, it seems that there is nowhere near enough appetite within the Conservative Party to remove Boris Johnson over this, to trigger some kind of vote of no confidence in his leadership. We've had all the evidence, we've had all the photos released, and so I now think that today is the day when Boris Johnson starts fighting back. And I don't see that with any, I don't say that with any glee or delight in my voice. I said um, many times when the Partygate scandal first emerged that he should have resigned and he really should have done. He's the first prime minister ever to have been served a fixed penalty notice, fined by the police while in office. That's never happened before. Um, and just a question of honour and honesty and integrity. He should have gone a long time ago. However, I am not uh, at all of the belief that that actually will happen. I think it's highly likely that he will lead the Conservatives into the next general election, which will happen either next year or in 2024, and that they will probably win that as well. As far as Partygate goes, there's been some new details that have emerged today because Sue Gray has published her report. As you said, some photos have come out showing uh, various events that we'd heard about before, that we were lacking some details. Um, there are several aspects which seems to contradict some of what Boris Johnson said, like there was one particular leaving do at which a couple of senior members of Downing Street staff were leaving and they held some kind of small gathering to see them off. Um, and Boris Johnson seemed to imply that it was a very quick, you know, toast of a drink and then and then leaving. Uh, but in actual fact, the photos show that there was quite a substantial spread of food. There was various drinks. There were lots of people in attendance. There are many, many holes you can pick in what he has said. Um, the point of contention is whether he actually lied to Parliament, because if he did lie to Parliament, that is an offence where you have to resign. And if it was clear that he resigned to Parliament, it's almost certain that he would be kicked out by his own party. But because of the way he talks, because he's, for want of a better word, he's kind of slimy in the way that he dodges issues, he has been able to um, get around it, even though very clearly he has been trying to shift the blame onto other people, shift the focus away from him, himself throughout this uh, scandal, even when it was very clear that he was very much part of what was going on and very much in the know when those rules were being broken. You know, sometimes we overthink politics. We get into all the nitty gritty and the 3D chess of it and all that. How much of this story is just fatigue? There's a whole lot of other stuff going on. And we've talked about it before with our UK contributors over and over again. There's no real clear-cut successor in the Conservative Party that would be ready to step forward. How much of this is just kind of inertia of those factors of there's story fatigue, there's a lot of other things going on in the world, people are trying to move on from the story, and there's nobody to really step up and take Boris Johnson's place, so just practically speaking, taking him out at this point would be a problematic for the party. 
is it a lot more of that stuff and we're just putting some of the more political stuff on top of it trying to make more of it than what it probably was well there is definitely a lot of political fatigue around partygate it's been clear i think for some time in fact i would say it's been clear since almost the beginning that this was not going to be a big enough scandal to force him out of office because people are tired of hearing about it. And shortly after the scandal first broke, we then had other very significant developments, like, for example, Russia invading Ukraine. And since then, we've had the cost of living crisis in the UK that has really taken hold and lots of questions being asked about that. And it really puts into perspective how important or perhaps unimportant it is to have detailed discussions about whether or not the prime minister ate some birthday cake in his office or whether he had drinks in the Downing Street garden one day two years ago. Um, so there is a lot of fatigue around it. And that's why I think it's it's clear now that the story will go away, because up to now, it's always been waiting for the next thing, whether it's waiting for the Metropolitan Police to publish their findings or whether for waiting for Sue Gray to publish her findings and so on. Now there is nothing left to wait for, as far as I can see. And so the scandal is over. I'm not convinced, however, about this argument of uh, Boris Johnson staying in post only because there isn't someone clear to replace him. Um, when Theresa May resigned in 2019, Boris Johnson was seen by many as the clear successor and he won that leadership contest by a landslide. But there aren't many occasions before that. I can think certainly of David Cameron, the prime minister before that, where there had to be a very clear successor for it to be considered possible for the prime minister to be to resign or to be forced out of office. I think there are plenty of contenders. Rishi Sunak, the chancellor, has seen his uh, polling ratings tumble a little bit recently, but there's Liz Truss, the foreign secretary, who is very, very popular in the Conservative Party. We have uh, various other senior cabinet ministers. There's a huge amount of talent in the Conservative Party. There would be no problem at all. There would be no shortage of candidates if Boris Johnson were to resign to tomorrow. The problem is that he is, as some people say, Teflon Boris. Nothing sticks to him. None of these scandals can bring him down. And of course, it's in very recent memory that he delivered Brexit and he um, secured that 80 seat huge majority in Parliament for the Conservative Party back in 2019. He is still seen as an election winner. He is still seen as someone who people in the red wall of former Labour heartlands like and will vote for. And so I don't think there is any chance, I don't think there's any appetite to get rid of him before the next election. Yeah, he's going to be an interesting case study when we get like five or 10 years away from his premiership and look back on it. Because he he's one of those guys, you call it Teflon, um, back during the Obama administration, we called it the stray vultures series. There's just so much going on. It's not that they're scandals. It's just they kind of come one after another after another. You're just going from scandal to scandal to scandal, and you never stop and process any of it. So it doesn't seem like it sticks. Fascinating political figure going down the road when we look back on his tenure. I think it'll be interesting. Okay, Jason Reed, real quick before we got to let you go, my friend. I want to do this. Um, we have lots of young voices, contributors on this program. You are behind the scenes, uh, one of the leaders of that. I work with you all the time on getting these great guests on here. The good news about that is, is this is the season where people who are curious about young voices can actually be joining young voices. You're more articulate than I am. That's why you're my boss at Young Voices. Could you articulate to folks who are liberty minded, freedom minded, who are looking to do things in the media and writing and commentary realm? Give them the pitch because this is the season where they can actually take a look at Young Voices and see if they want to jump in with us. I'm proud of my uh, affiliation with them. I think we do a whole lot of really good things and good work. Give them the pitch and let them know how they can do that, my friend. 
Absolutely. So the Young Voices Contributor Programme uh, takes people on twice a year. And now is the time if you want to apply. The deadline is on Tuesday, uh, May 31st to apply at young-voices.com. And we can help you uh, if you become a contributor. We have a team of professional editors who will work with you on your writing. And I can testify from personal experience. It makes a huge difference. It will make you into a much better political commentator, a much better op-ed writer and help you make those connections with media outlets to get published. And this applies in the US, in the UK, in Australia, in France, as of recently as well. And we also have the, the PR side, we call it, which I'm in charge of, which is to do with TV and radio and broadcast interviews. We train you up and we mentor you. And if, we, if you want to, we can talk about booking you for TV and radio interviews. Uh, and we help, we hope that we help people have the gain the professional training and skills that they need to go on and commentate on politics, to have their voice heard, to be a policy analyst, to be a journalist, to be whatever they want to be within the realm of politics and policy. And because we just give you those, those skills, building that bridge between the media and young people. And when I say young people, officially the uh, upper age limit is 35, but of course, I'm sure Andrew can testify that we have a little bit of uh, flexibility in certain cases on that particular front. Flexibility, that's what we're gonna call it now. You're gonna call me old with flexibility. All right. I didn't say old, Andrew, I said <laughs> flexible, let's stick with that. <laughs> <laughs> my birthday's actually on Sunday, so I, uh, I feel every bit of it, my friend. I appreciate that. Uh, Jason Reed, one last quick thing though, you do a lot of UK media, you're gonna do media right after this. What's something that we should be watching from this side of the pond in the UK? I know cost of living something both sides of the Atlantic is going to be dealing with. What's one of the media things because you're in those green rooms, you talk to producers, things like that. What's bubbling that we should be paying attention to over there? Well, this is a very interesting time in the UK media. And a lot of that discourse revolves around how much the UK media should or shouldn't be like American media. In fact, we've had two new television channels launch, national ones, in the last year, one GB News and one Talk TV, which is owned by the same company uh, that runs Fox News. And there's a lot of discussion about whether either of them could or should or, or will soon be the British version of Fox News and this kind of talking, um, you know, down the camera in a very opinionated, often right of centre way. So I would suggest keeping an eye on those two outlets in particular. It's a very, very interesting development that is going on. I think it's a good thing. I think we don't have enough um, we didn't have enough variety um, among uh, in terms of TV, news and opinion and politics for people to choose from. And so more is better and the free market will decide who succeeds. And I think there's a lot of space for um, new voices to come through. But that is something that I think is really, really interesting to keep an eye on is how those two channels compete and develop and how they shape the, out, the uh, output of the bigger and more established channels like the BBC and like Sky News. Yeah, and uh, we appreciate seeing you on there. We appreciate you getting the young voices out on there. Uh, I pitch young voices because one simple thing, the people are outstanding. I've, every single one of them, it's amazing for the several years I've been with them. Jason Reed, always enjoy talking to you. It's good to do it on camera. Let's do it again soon, my friend. Thanks so much, Andrew. It's great to talk to you as well. Yes, sir. Thank you. Uh, we're going to talk about the issue in Texas, the horrible slaughter of those children in that school. We're going to talk about the gun debate. We're going to talk about the horrible, disturbing stuff we're hearing about the law enforcement and police response to this. We're going to get to that.
we're going to talk about the president and the political side of this. There's been a lot of noise about that, about what he can and should and is and is not able to do. We'll get into that. We'll do what we always do. We'll end the program on something of a high note or at least a lighter note and try to get our Friday finished up on something that's not quite as heavy as what we're going to spend most of this pro- most of this program talking about. We're going to do that as well. But we're going to start the program right where we need to start it and where the focus needs to be on the victims of this horrible shooting. This was an elementary school, second, third, and fourth grade by all reports. It means most of these kids were very young, and since most of these were in one classroom, they were almost all the same age, 10 years old. I just want to go through these victims because the human cost of these things starts getting lost as we debate policies and we start to debate politics and we start to debate all the other things involved. We need to remember these names and think about our own children and children that we know. Alexandria Anaya Rubio. This is just going to be hard. I got four daughters. Can we just be real for a second? This school had just had their honor roll ceremony for the end of the year. So a lot of these kids had just gotten certificates or their end-of-the-year prizes, or AB honor roll, and things like this. Alexandria was one of them. She was on the honor roll ceremony. Alithia Ramirez, 10 years old. Um, she had also just submitted a doodle to Google to try to get on the Google doodle, you know, the ones that pop up. A Mary Jo Garza, 10 years old. She had just gotten AB honor roll that morning. Annabelle Guadalupe Rodriguez, also 10 years old. Aliana Cruz Torres, also 10 years old. She's a softball player. The picture in the media is her in her softball uniform with her eye paint on, with her bat on her shoulder, with a rather uh, saucy look on her face. 10 years old, this girl was killed in the shooting. She was supposed to have a softball game later that very day. Eliana Ellie Garcia, nine years old. She was the second oldest of five girls in her household. Uh, The picture of her, big bow in her hair, basketball jersey on, smiling. Eva Morales. That was one of the teachers. She was 44 years old. Her husband, Ruben Ruiz, is a police officer in the district. He was one of the officers who responded to the shooting and were apparently shot at by the shooter. He was not injured. It's so easy. Morales's aunt said in a message to the Times that she was furious to lose her niece in such a tragic and senseless ways. In a post, Morales's daughter described her mother as the half that makes me whole. In a statement, she said, you know, you are so known by many now and so happy that people know your name and that your beautiful face is yours and they know what a hero looks like. This is her daughter writing. My heart will forever be broken. Irma Garcia was the other teacher. My tia did not make it, John Martinez wrote about his aunt, Irma Garcia, a fourth-grade teacher at Robb Elementary School. She sacrificed herself protecting her kids in the classroom. She died a hero. She was loved by many and will be truly missed. And just because the cascading effects of this tragedy isn't bad enough, um, she had been married to 24 years to her husband and was the mother of four kids. 
while her husband was grieving, he went home, suffered some kind of a medical incident, and passed away himself. They have four children. Jackie Cesares, 10 years old. July Nicole Seguero. And if I'm mispronouncing these names, I apologize. Her mother said, I took her to school, but she didn't want to go that day. She told her father, can I just stay home? I don't know if she knew something was happened or just because it was one of the last days of school. Imagine living with that. Jace Lovanos, 10 years old. Jose Flores, 10 years old. He has a picture from that very morning, from that awards ceremony we were talking about. Proudly displaying his honor roll certificate under a Rob 22 banner, the name of the school. Layla Salazar, another kid, pictured sitting and eating and holding up two blue ribbons. She was just a whole lot of fun, Vincent Salazar said, adding that his daughter liked to dance to TikTok videos and singing along with him to Guns and Roses every morning on the way to school. McKenna Lee Elrod's also 10 years old. Family member posted on Facebook, my heart is shattered and my daughter Chloe loved her so much. Just a few weeks ago, she got a friendship bracelet from her at the ballpark. She wore it every day. She's wearing it today. Maddie Rodriguez, it's with a heavy heart. I come on behalf of my cousin, Anna, who had lost her sweet baby girl, Raquel Silva wrote on Facebook. Our hearts are shattered. She's another one of those kids. Same picture, same background. Rob 22 in the background, holding up her certificates that she had gotten just that morning before her life was ended by this wicked act. Miranda Mathis was only 11 years old. Nevia Bravo. Her age isn't listed here, but she would be in that 10 to 11 years range as well. Rogeo Torres. Tess Marie Mata. There's a series of pictures of her, almost all of them with her cat, you know, oodling, doing splits, you know, the stuff little girls do. Uzziah Garcia. A Facebook post family member wrote, he was the type of kid that could get interested in anything in five minutes. He was just a perfect kid as far as I was concerned. We had a tight relationship, me and my grandson, his grandfather wrote, and I don't have him anymore. This is where the grandfather's voice broke. He said, I lost my grandson at the hands of a very evil person. Xavier Lopez was 10 years old. He was funny, never serious and had a smile, that smile I will never forget. It would always cheer up anyone. Felicia Martinez told the Washington Post about her 10-year-old son. She had watched him get his honor roll certificate just a couple hours before he was killed. I don't have anything clever to say here. These are children. They should be enjoying their summer right now because their school year should be about ended. They should be doing all the things kids do in the summer after finishing up a grade of school at that age. But they're not. We're going to talk about all the surrounding things about this tragedy. We're going to talk about how it's happened before, what we can try to do to prevent it from happening again, how it's probably going to happen again because we don't want to listen to each other. But before we do all that, I just wanted to read the names. I'm going to be real with you. 
I've been about an hour and a half trying to do this. Even edited it. It's still not easy. So I'm going to take a minute and then we're going to continue with Herd Tell right after this. Welcome back to Herd Tell. I'm Andrew Donson. Okay, we are getting really disturbing stuff being reported about the law enforcement response to this shooting. Now, we're going to be covering this in depth as it develops. Um, as always on our program, we slowly come to the realization of what goes on in these things. We don't want to react to the original stories because they're almost always wrong. Now that we're a couple of days from it, we're finding out some very important details. I just want to point out to everybody, I understand the policy arguments. I understand the gun arguments. I understand the violence arguments. I understand when it's kids, it gets everything inflamed anymore. But understand we're getting some very detailed information that changes the scope and shape of this story. So we've already spent a lot of emotional capital, some of us, yelling at each other for the last two days, and now we're getting some other pieces of the puzzle. It's just a reminder that we need to invoke 24-hour, sometimes 48- or 72-hour rules on these things. Don't just smash send at every little thing we see, let these things develop a little bit because the things we're finding out now are truly disturbing, especially about the law enforcement response. I want to take one thing that has gone viral and because it's a viral clip, I wanted to get it in full context because I got very angry at this and I almost lost my own bearing. So I took a minute, slowed down, went and dug into it. Our friends over at Mediate, uh, we've had uh, Sarah Rumpf and folks over there. We use them frequently. Uh, they have the full context. Uh, Department of Public Safety in Texas, Lieutenant Chris Olivares was on with Wolf Blitzer on CNN. You've probably seen this clip on social media. It is absolutely everywhere now. I want to give the full context of this statement, and then I'm going to react to it because I think that's the fair way to do that, especially when I'm going to react as strongly as the way I'm going to react to it. Okay. So, and by the way, this deals with the shooting. So if you have trouble with that, this may not be the segment for you. Wolf Blitzer on CNN, longtime CNN anchor. Uh, again, this is from Mediaite. Blitzer asked his guest if the officer at the scene made the correct choice to wait for backup before they went after the gunman. I want to pause right here. There's still some conflicting reports on how long this thing went. Some reports now say 40 minutes. One uh, Customs and Border Patrol spokesman said it was as much as an hour before that Customs and Border Patrol TAC team actually went in and ended this thing. 40 minutes, an hour, whatever it is, it was way too long and we need a lot of answers. But We'll get into that at another time. Right now, Wolf Blitzer asked his guest, this is uh, Department of Public Safety Lieutenant Chris Oliveras, if they made the correct choice to wait. Oliveras said officers were inside the school pretty quickly and they heard gunfire when they arrived, reading from Mediaite. They called for reinforcements, he said. The officers in the building waited for a special tactical team to show up as they isolated the shooter to one classroom. Remember, there's kids in that classroom. All the children that died and the two teachers were all in one classroom. Don't current, this is Wolf Blitzer's question. Again, you've seen the viral clip. This is the full context. 
don't current best practices, don't they call for officers to disable a shooter as quickly as possible, regardless of how many officers are actually on the site, Blitzer asked him. Oliveras said the officers who arrived at the school quickly may have been shot at it had they attempted to take the gunman out alone. He said, this is his full quote. This is not the clipped quote that's going around social media. I want you to read and hear the full quote. Quote, Oliveras, the active shooter situation, you want to stop the killing, you want to preserve life, but also one thing that, of course, the American people need to understand, that officers are making entry into this building. They do not know where the gunman is. They are hearing gunshots. They are receiving gunshots. At that point, if they proceed any further not knowing where the suspect was at, they could have been shot. They could have been killed. And that gunman would have had an opportunity to kill the people, other people inside that school. That's the full context of the clip. Now, the viral clip going around is him saying, well, they could have been killed. This spokesman should never be allowed in front of a television camera ever again. Number one. Number two, the mentality here is disturbing. I understand the police have a difficult job. I understand they have a very dangerous job. I understand that we have policemen killed all the time in this country, hundreds of years, if not more. I very much support police. I think we should have very good relationships with our police. But if you support something, you hold it accountable. If you don't hold it accountable, you don't really care about it. I know this is going to sound harsh, but this is the truth of it. Your job was to go in there towards that gunfire. There was innocent children getting shot. And if you stood around for 40 minutes to an hour, as is currently being reported by officials, what in the hell is wrong with you? 40 minutes to an hour with children dying. Well, they could have been shot at. I understand that. It's a difficult job. I understand that. Nobody made them become police officers. Nobody made them hold their right hand up and swear an oath to protect and defend. They cash the paychecks. They take the benefits. They walk around with the badges on their chest and their weapons at their side. They're proud, most of them, of being police officers. If you can't strap it up to go into harm's way, when you know for a fact that innocent children are being slaughtered mere feet away from where you're standing. That's more than a police problem. That's a human being problem. You took all those paychecks to be a public servant, and when they really needed you, you did nothing. We have videos now that we're sorting through to find out which ones are valid and which ones are not. Some people online are go, well, they were outgunned. I don't know. I'm seeing a lot of videos of police standing around outside, tack vests on, rifles in hand, and they're fighting with parents, not fighting with the gunman. There's something very, very broken and wrong in the law enforcement response to this event. I think some enterprising reporters should probably look into the local police of this department because I don't think this happens in a vacuum. This sort of incompetence and cowardice comes from somewhere, and I suspect it's going to come to light that there was problems within this law enforcement community, whether it was in Uvalde or in the other local and reporting agencies that showed up. All credit to the Customs and Border Patrol TAC team that took the shooter down. It's not their fault it took them a while to get there. 
this should have already been handled. But especially if these videos come out to be true, that they were fighting, that these police officers were fighting with the parents, even cuffing the parents, resisting them from going in because they were not going in to do anything. There is going to be absolute hell to pay. And this is going to hurt and damage law enforcement in ways that no protest and no buzzwords and nothing that we've ever seen in years before has. This is going to be some truly ugly stuff. And I'll go right back to what I said before. Don't throw the you don't support police crap at me. They put their hand up in the air. They swore an oath. They took all the paychecks. They cashed the benefits. They need to do the job. And if you can't do the job, take the badge off, turn the gun in, and go do something else. We have militarized our police in this country for decades now, and they brag about it. And we need to talk about police reform and criminal justice reform. All those things are true. But if you can't strap it up and save some kids' lives, even if it means going into harm's way yourself, you're in the wrong job. And not only are you in the wrong job, you're getting people killed. Go do something else. What you ought to do if you had a lick of integrity, cops that stood around outside doing nothing, whoever ordered them to stand around and do nothing. I want all those names. I don't know if we'll ever get them, but I want those names because those people need to be held to accountability. Not only should you resign in shame, you should return all the money you earned by saying you were going to protect your community. It was taken under false pretenses because you didn't. When we really needed a good guy with a gun, you stood around with your gun and did absolutely nothing until somebody else went and did it for you. Live with it. If you can. More hotel right after this. back to her tell i'm andrew donaldson okay everybody's freaking out over monkeypox, uh the latest disease they go viral in the news media and everybody's losing their minds over it so let's go to who we've relied to throughout the covid pandemic our friend michael siegel the most appearances on the herd tell program because he's just that darn smart he's writing in ordinary times his usual thursday throughput science feature leads off about the monkeypox. so i'll read from that our friend michael siegel here so monkeypox. Are we about to go back to the lockdown? Do we need to live in terror? Is this the beginning of the Planet of the Apes collapse of human society? Nah. So here's the story on monkeypox. This is Michael Siegel writing in Ordinary-Times.com. This piece will be linked in the show notes. It is a DNA orthopox virus. That's the family that includes things like smallpox. Endemic to Africa, it occasionally flares up when people come into contact with infected animals or infected animal meat. It is somewhat contagious in humans, but requires close contact to spread. There are two different strains, one with a 10% fatality rate and one with a 1% fatality rate. Know which one I would prefer. But those are for the untreated monkeypox. When the less dangerous one broke out in the United States in 2003, at least 70 people were infected, but no one died. No one. Monkeypox has long been considered a candidate for an incident with exercises run within the last decade simulating a monkeypox outbreak. 
The current outbreak has seen over 300 cases in 21 countries all over the globe. What's more, most of the cases did not involve exposure to animals or meat. It seems to be spreading in communities. While it's not clear where the outbreak began, it does seem to be hitting gay male communities, at least initially, which indicates that this is being spread by sexual encounters, which can produce the kind of close personal contact needed to spread the disease. The good news is that monkeypox is running into a public health community already on a war footing. We detected the outbreak early and are doing contact tracing. There is talk of doing ring immunizations using either smallpox vaccines, which is about 85% effective on monkeypox, or a new monkeypox vaccine. We have already gotten genomic sequencing, which is an amazingly fast timescale, and this does not appear to be a new strand. In short, this is something to keep an eye on, but it's not another COVID-19. It is something we have studied for years. It has far less infectious, and more importantly, it lacks COVID-19's talent for making people infectious before they know they're sick. Even in the worst-case scenarios, we already have a massive group of people that have a high resistance, those old enough to have been vaccinated against smallpox. I've got one of those. I got the nice big circle scar up here where they did the port pitchfork thing back in my military days. And we have not one but two vaccines ready to go for the rest of us. However, this is a reminder that we need to keep our guard up. COVID-19 is not the last viral challenge we will face. The world is, the world is not flat. And increasingly, human population and the global warming may drive future outbreaks. If you like, we are entering a state of cold war against a disease that will occasionally flare up into hot wars like the COVID-19 outbreak. Now is not the time to relax. It's the time to be more vigilant. Michael Siegel turning down the noise on the monkeypox viral stories. Just be cautious. Be aware. Keep yourself informed. Don't panic. It's not going to be that bad especially as long as you don't eat infected meat or have close encounters with somebody infected. A lot of common sense stops a lot of virus, something we should have learned but didn't over the last few years. More Herd Tell right after this. Okay, welcome back to Herd Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Uh, I did some newspaper writing. Uh, I, I believe in local media. I've been working on a partnership with local media in my native West Virginia. Local media matters. Uh, and I partnered with the Fayette Tribune to write a piece that I'm rather proud of. And I wanted to share it with you because it made me feel good to write it. The aftermath uh, was positive. The subject uh, got something tangible out of it. And I want to share that piece with you now. It's in the Fayette Tribune. That's Fayette County, uh, West Virginia. Uh, FayetteTribune.com. We'll also link it in the show notes. The title is Laboring Under the Nobody Wants to Work Narrative. It's written by me. Sometimes we hear things over and over again until they become the general consensus by repetition more than merit. Common knowledge truthisms take the jagged edges between the moving tectonic plates of societal change and try to explain the grinding and shaking with the simplest possible explanations. Often, there are explanations without the full thought or reasoning. The way the ancients attributed the sun to the sun god or the moon to the moon god and everything else to miscellaneous unknowable something-somethings that control such things. Economic upheaval is a complicated subject of much debate. 
So it is no wonder that when business after business hang out help wanted signs, coupled with endless news stories of labor shortages, there are going to be some factual shortcuts to get to the explanations down to a soundbite. That soundbite of late is nobody wants to work, and it is spread until it is recited as part of our current cultural and political catechism. It was just over a year ago that a fast food joint put at the sign out, we are short staffed. Please be patient with the staff that did show up. Nobody wants to work, which showed up on a TikTok, which quickly went viral, causing many copycats and became ingrained as the truth. Nobody wants to work just sounds right, easily putting the blame on nobody, the first cousin of the always popular them when it comes to assessing blame. Lazy, entitled, deadbeats. The list of invective goes on from there. Think pieces, deep dives, podcasts, and specials follow drinking deep from the draft of nobody wants to work to apply broadly to whatever demographic needed conjoled or blamed. Thousands of them. But this is not one of them. This is the story of someone who does work and works hard, not only deserves to be recognized for it, but praised as an example for countless others who do the same. Or, at least in proportion to the press, nobody is getting as of late for not working. Someone who is not trying to make a statement or change a narrative, but just putting in their work as best they can, the way it was supposed to be done, just getting on with it. The folks in towns like Golly Bridge, West Virginia, are veterans are getting on with it. The 600-odd residents still living on the side of the hills, not taking up by the mountain, the rivers, or the railroad, or of those who call adjacent Scrabble Creek home, have had to adjust to plenty. The loss of jobs and industry that plagues many places, but the Canal River Valley especially. The ferro-alloy plant at Alloy, just down the river, once employed thousands, now barely pays out a few hundred. The surrounding mines and supporting industry that came and went and finally disappeared altogether. The town itself lost population, then it lost its high school, and now it's facing losing its elementary school, too. Unemployment is much higher than the national average, and those that do work average 31 minutes to drive to get there. But nobody wants to work is an easier slogan from folks from other places than the nuances and trauma of slowly losing chunks of your town in a region that is demographically bleeding to death in a state that's used to things being extracted with only stereotypes and lazy analysis like nobody wants to work left for the folks behind. So when checking to see if Gino's Pizza and Spaghetti House in Gully Bridge would be open for an after church lunch and the ubiquitous where hiring comes right up, could have been a foreshadowing to another round of eating out with subpar service. After all, at a restaurant with linen tablecloths and everything the day before, short staffing from the previous evening's large party for a wedding or some such was the proffered reason for slow service, a list of things that were on the menu but weren't available, being out of lettuce because of that said party was a particularly interesting antidote, not particularly well-prepared food, and an overall meh experience, despite the server who was working really hard, scurrying, apologizing, trying their best to get on with it, in a hard-to-impossible situation that they were set up to fail. Such service industry employees are trying to work, but too often are saddled with hard-to-impossible tasks that have much of them wondering if their wages are worth the effort at all, which then gets them lumped into nobody wants to work, instead of the more understandable and universal, I just want better. So you could be forgiven then for skepticism at Geno's, especially since the unchanged double side out front still advertised the once twin Tudor's biscuit world that years ago moved downriver onto its own building, a separate place that had built as a Wendy's that survived for about five minutes before it closed. One wonders if that was a nobody wants to work situation or just the average run of the mill incompetence to run a notoriously hard to run and thin margin pursuit like a chain restaurant. Thus Geno's it became 
and expectations of a lifetime of patronage was met immediately. For the uninitiated, Gino's Pizza and Spaghetti has been a staple in Southern West Virginia for decades, often paired with the aforementioned Tudor's Biscuit World that handles breakfast duties before switching over for the day. The Golly Bridge version is a classic pizza joint. You order at the counter, you sit at booster tables where your order is brought to you. There's even a Miss Pac-Man game, as God intended every real pizzeria to have. And there's only one employee working. Not only working, but working well, crisp, polite, effective service, bouncing from phone to computer to screen to tables to the back, lather, rinse, repeat. After ordering, it was a pleasure to behold the old instincts of having been a manager and leader. I'm sitting there thinking, this is exactly the kind of employee you want to have. Phone ringing off the hook, but dealt with. A lady comes in to pick up an order of pizzas too high to get it under the COVID-19 mandated plexiglass, and it required two trips. Handled. A few more guests come in and sit down, and they are told they will be served directly as our drinks and appetizer are brought out. There's a beautiful ballet to the efficient work of someone zoned into the task at hand and doing it well, problem-solving on the fly, handling customer service of just getting on with it. The food comes, and it's exactly what it should be. Gino's is far from hot cuisine, and the dedicated pizza snobs or pasta perfectionists would no doubt find fault, but in my lifetime, I've had far more good meals than not there. One employee pulled a dozen directions, putting their work in, and not after too long of a wait, got the food right. Could have been pictures for the menu, exactly what was expected, as ordered, after not too long of a wait. Food made with the most important ingredient of any job, of any employment, of any work. A large portion of give a damn. Personal integrity or a desire to do well or wanting to keep their job or whatever the motivation was, the job was not just done, but done well. Done when there were a thousand excuses not to and probably the ability to go viral for making a fuss about it if they didn't. Eating and enjoying, fellowshipping with the family as I was, resting for a moment before continuing on what was going to be a very long day, all made far more enjoyable by having witnessed this, having been well served, having been treated well. One employee busting out pizzas and publishes and spaghetti on a Sunday afternoon laying bare the lazy lie of nobody wants to work, not with a think piece or a viral video, but with the irrefutable evidence of honest labor. Of course, there are those who do not want to work for a variety of reasons, and there are those who take advantage of the system not to work. West Virginia, like everywhere else, has their fair share of those. But as it isn't everyone, it's not even the majority. And just because the common knowledge and general consensus shouts nobody wants to work in our media outlets doesn't mean we shouldn't push back when we see the steady, everyday rhythm of those who do work, who do their best, who toil, who labor, and make a living as best they can. The seemingly endless number of media platforms should spend some more time on those folks, on how to improve their lives and opportunities and avenues for taking their want to and applying it to the sound policies that improve them, their families, and our communities. That's a more useful expenditure of our efforts instead of furthering the nobody wants to work on the nameless, faceless them who are always quick to be blamed but never pay the price for anything. That price is always paid by those who do work, usually without much complaint because they ain't got time for that. For those of us who do have the ability to write or talk or elevate stories, a well-made after-church lunch at the Golly Bridge Geno's would be a good reminder whenever stories of labor shortages roll across our social media timelines or on the news crawls on TV, that one employee taking care of dozens of customers is a worthy thing to praise. As we cleaned our own tables and took our remains to the counter, our small part to help someone who was already doing enough, and made sure the payment was handled in a temp-wit and a tip went directly into the hands that provided the service, there's just one thing I had to know before departing. What's your name? Jeremy White, sir, was the reply. 
And as I said to him, as we should all say to those who work, whether noticed or not, instead of constantly complaining about those that won't, well done. I was very proud to publish that. FayetteTribune.com, we'll link it in the show notes. Full back page of the paper. Very proud to write on stories like this. More Hertel right after this. Welcome back to her tell Andrew Donaldson. Okay, let's talk a little politics here. Uh, president Biden's the president. Now, we talk all the time on this program. The president gets too much blame. The president gets too much credit. That's just the gig. That's part of being in the chair. Interestingly enough, I was on uh, talk TV over in the UK on Tuesday night. They wanted a live perspective on some of these issues. And one of the questions that the UK host asked me, uh, Daisy McAndrews, very sharp lady, follow her. She does a great program over there. She directly asked me, what did I think President Joe Biden's response was going to be? And I told her the truth. This is one of his signature issues. Senator Biden, of course, talks a lot now that he's President Biden about when he passed the assault weapons ban back in 1994 that expired in 2004. He's constantly talking about that. He brags about it. He's been a gun control guy for all of his career in public service, pretty much. You remember his famous shotgun comments during the vice presidential debates years and years ago. And I told her, I was like, I suspect we won't get 24 hours without him uttering the words assault weapons banned and so on and so forth. And I was right uh, a couple hours after that interview because of the time differences, uh, President Biden came out. So he's again pushing for all this stuff. However, Let's go to the Politico because, and this is just an example of some of the stuff getting said. There's lots worse on social media, but people just lose their minds and forget what reality is. Headline, he can't just be the eulogizer in chief. That's in quotes. Frustration grows over Biden's Texas response. I just want to read you the first little bit of this. This was written by uh, Christopher Caldego and Laura Barone Lopez uh, from the Politico. In the roughly 48 hours since yet another mass shooting, President Joe Biden has deliberately tried to stay out of the legislative and political scrum. He's refused to chastise Republicans explicitly for standing in the way of passing new gun laws and has given no outward indication of the type of bill he'd like to see pushed. Instead, he's allowed Senate Democrats to set the tone of the public debate while he offers comfort to the families of victims and explores his options. The approach has left some in the advocacy world. Hold on to that word. We're going to come right back to that in a second world nervous and wondering why the most powerful man in the country isn't adequately using the bully pulpit in such an emotionally wrought issue. He cannot be just the eulogizer in chief. He also needs to put the full force of his office into the legislative process. Otherwise, it would seem to be like he's lost hope, said Peter Ambler, executive director for the gun safety group Giffords. That's Gabrielle Giffords, you know, the congresswoman that was shot uh, and uh, disabled for life. Um, that's her uh, advocacy group. Uh, she is also, by the way, the wife of sitting U.S. Senator Mark Kelly, who's running for re-election out in Arizona. I think he can have an impact if and the whole White House swing into action. White House aides and some close allies say the current posture won't likely change soon. Publicly injecting himself into the delicate gun control negotiations in the Senate could backfire, since few across Washington expect such talks to seriously advance, they argue. So 
could taking matters into his own hands by immediately issuing executive actions to crack down, which risks sending the Republican lawmakers otherwise open the negotiations back to their corners. Plus, it would be challenged in court. People close to the talks related to Politico. For now, the White House is prioritizing the confirmation of Steve Dettelback. It's nominee to lead the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives. By the way, uh, over at the Reload, our friend Stephen Kukowski's site, uh, there's a reason they're still trying to get an ATF uh, nominee. You can go read on all that on your spare time. Uh, according to people who've spoken to the White House in the days since the New York and Texas shooting on Wednesday, Biden urged the Senate to confirm Dettelbach without delay, without excuses, and put a permanent director atop the ATF for the first time in seven years. Um, and while he's urged Congress to move on gun laws, asking why the country is willing to live with mass shootings, Biden has framed the issue as a collective responsibility rather than one he can substantially address with the power of the executive. The president's absolutely right. He cannot unilaterally deal with this with the power of the executive. Now, the call President Biden soft on gun control is absolutely ludicrous. He is the politician. If you're one of those people that advocate for assault weapons ban, he's the guy that got you one. So saying that he's soft or not doing enough is just kind of ridiculous and not fair criticism of Joe Biden. I don't particularly agree with him on this issue, but the man's been consistent. He's been a big advocate of gun control. You folks on the advocacy, I love that term, the advocacy people. Okay, you folks in the advocacy people want a unicorn here. You have a president whose approval ratings are in the 30s. You have a 50-50 Senate, and you have a House of Representatives in which every single one of them are running for re-election, and especially the Democrats are running in what looks like it's going to be a red wave election year, and a lot of them are going to lose their seats. What do you want them to do exactly? Oh, you want those fiery speeches on the floor of the Senate. Oh, inflamed speeches. He gave a fiery response in the well of the Senate. You know what? My social media is full of flowery and fiery speeches. Anybody can do that. That and 495 will get you a caramel macchiato. It's not doing anything. It's just fluff. Now, if you really want to try to do something legislatively, there's a way to do that, but you're not going to like it. It's not, it doesn't trend well. You go into negotiations with people and you do the hard work of trying to legislate. Now, even squishy people on Second Amendment things, from their point of view, I'm, mind you, is what I'm saying here, like Joe Manchin, looks like he's a little open to at least discussing certain things. But if you do what you're advocating the president to do, that'll all stop. Now, I don't think anything's passing anyway. This is an election year. It's a midterm election year. You're not getting gun legislation this year. It's not going to happen. They might be able to get something that has some bipartisan support, like some kind of a red flag uh, situation, but even that would probably be fraud in this current environment. Advocacy people don't want to live in the real world on stuff like this. The president is probably making the right political call, and he's correctly reading the room. So give the guy a little bit of a break. If he's on your team, you say you're on his side. I don't know why you're beating him up over this. He can't make unicorns show up to save you on every little policy issue. It's frustrating when people don't understand that politics have to be between the rails of reality, even if you advocate for certain things, even if you're passionately advocating on it, please have a little perspective on what is and isn't possible, especially in a time of crisis like this when passions are high, because then you start otherizing the other side for not being as passionate as you are. And then you start with some really ridiculous rhetoric about who has whose blood on their hands and this sort of thing. These are politicians. They're going to do politician things. 
Don't expect saintly stuff out of them, but we can expect them to do their jobs. We can also not make their jobs any harder than they also have to be. I bang on our Congress critters all the time, but asking them to do the impossible just because you're upset online, advocacy people, that's not fair. More Herd Tell right after this. of Herd Tales twice on Sunday. We hope you join us again on Monday, or if you're listening to this some other time, continue to look through all the episodes of Herd Tell, all the good talks that we have, all the twice on Sunday programs. We sure do appreciate it. Do us a favor, though. Make sure you're leaving a comment and a rating on whatever platform you're watching or listening this on. It's really important to us. Let's other folks know our little program is worth listening to. It also gives us good feedback. We always answer those comments. If you want to talk to us directly, herdtellshow at gmail.com. Herdtellshow on the Twitter. Always thrilled to hear from you. Might even put it in the show. We've had commenters come on the show and fight their corner before, so you never know. Keep your bearing. Be nice. But we love to hear from you. So until we talk to you again, wherever you and yours are, across the street or around the world, we hope you are well. We hope you are well fed. Can't wait to talk to you again. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.